This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 605 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Chris Jacobson. Now, Chris spent a 30-year career in law enforcement, working in multiple roles, including canine and SWAT. He is also the man who spearheaded Task Force Sentinel within the Operation Enduring Warrior community. So we discuss a host of topics from his friendship with Frank Wright, the Iwo Jima veteran I had on the show, his journey through law enforcement, the incredible things Operation Enduring Warrior are doing for the first responder and veteran community, and so much more. Before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 600 episodes, so all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Chris Jacobson. Enjoy. Well, Chris, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm honored. Well, I'm honored. Firstly, this is long time coming. I mean, your name was brought up a long time ago, some of the other OED, OED, OEW family. Um, but, uh, you know, we just did the conversation with Frank Wright, which I would like to start you know, as an icebreaker. Um, but again, you were kind enough to make that connection as well. So, you know, we've, we've obviously interacted a long time, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we're finally able to sit down and do this conversation. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited about it. I'm, I, again, like I've told you before, I'm, uh, surprised you find me interesting enough to talk to. So hopefully, you know, I don't bore the audience. That's absolute bullshit. <laughs> all right so the the last kind of interaction we had was frank wright who was one of the uh really founding members of um marine raiders um and served in multiple areas in the pacific including iwo jima where he was you know near critically wounded so and we did that conversation it was incredible so let's start with that how did you meet frank and then tell me about your interaction with him so in, I live in Lodi, California, and I see this, this little guy wearing an Iwo Jima hat, you know, a veteran hat. Iwo Jima, it's got a, a strange patch on the side I don't, I don't recognize. And um, I went over and I thanked him for his service. He was, he was eating lunch. So I walked up to him and I said, I want to thank you for your service. And he looked up at me and he goes, you're welcome for your freedom. And he's just such a, he's such a whip, you know? And uh, so we started chatting and he was telling me about all the things he did and we went our separate ways. And about six months later, I saw a World War II Marine Raider license plate frame on a car parked in a, you know, disabled spot. 
and out comes Frank. I'm going into Lowe's to, to go get some equipment and out comes Frank. And I stopped him again and said, hello, we were chatting. And he gave me his, his um, bookmark for his book. He told me about his book at that time. And I went and, and bought the book and, and read it. And, and I just loved it. And just, he was always in my memory. So fast forward, I, I just took a position with a senior center in Lodi. I'm a retired law enforcement uh, officer. And uh, I was asked to take a position at a, a senior center. And I went out one day and in the lobby for our, our meals programs, our lunch is Frank. He's sitting in there and he's waiting to get lunch. So I walked over and I said, Frank, what's going on? We started talking. And obviously you and I have a, a relationship through Operation Enduring Warrior. I know who you are. I know what you do. And I thought, man, we got to get this guy's story out, you know, record it and and get this established more, you know, the book is one thing, but let's get this out there in his own words. And so I asked him if he'd be interested and that's, that's where it went from there. I mean, he, he's, I see him every day. He is awesome. Now, what has he had any feedback or uh, kind of, you know, what, what's his uh, um, perspective of doing the interview? Cause I know that was kind of a unique, you know, e- even people that are this generation, a lot of them don't really know what podcasts are. So someone from, you know, the world war two era, um, you know, I guess a radio interview would be the closest thing. Yeah, you know, he's 90, he's 90, what, six, and he drives every day, and but he never heard of it, but he uses his cell phone, things like that, and he uses his internet, you know, his computer, but uh, he hasn't really said how much, um, you know, the podcast or what he's heard from the podcast. However, he's like a little, it's really boosted his little um, status at the senior center. They all Brilliant. heard me talking, <laughs> and they all want to talk to him more, and so, yeah, he's, you can really see he beams when he's talking about it and he loved doing it. He loved doing it. And the shirt, you know, you got the picture of the shirt. He puts the t-shirt on, your t-shirt on, and he just flashes me the peace sign. Hilarious. I mean, I figured him just standing up and let me take a picture. He's just, he's a character. So every time he's there, I introduce him to people and he, he just perks up and he always mentions his book and he gives them his car. That's his stick. He's gives them the, the, the um the bookmark that's his card he gives it to him but he wants he wants to tell his story which is nice he's at a point in his life he wants to tell that story well it was so refreshing um well first just before you say that he also completely outbladded me in that conversation i had to stop and go pee and he was just you know firing on all four cylinders so uh i had to i had to tap out in that conversation and i could have talked to him for probably another three hours on top of that but i think it was so important because I think pretty much all of us report that our grandparents' generation that served never really talked about the war. You know, I think our parents' generation said the same thing about their parents. Um, and so to have someone who was not only, you know, serving during World War II, but there was absolute tip of the spear that was at Iwo Jima, was shot at Iwo Jima, to talk so candidly about his mental health and really help reframe this kind of facade of, you know, rub some dirt in it, suck it up, buttercup, bullshit that, you know, has permeated after the war. I think his voice was absolutely invaluable. And he really spoke for probably so many World War II veterans that felt like they couldn't talk about it. No, you're right. I, I was fortunate to sit in with him while he, we did that interview with you at the senior center. And I was fortunate to sit in and listen to all that. And when he was talking about what he did to address the PTSD issues and, and, and his opinions of it, uh, 
that was powerful to me too, because again, my, uh, that era, they didn't talk about it. My uncle, all my uncles were in World War II. Uh, my dad was in, he was the baby of the bunch. My dad was in Korea and my, uh, my dad's nephew, which they're like brothers. They're about the same age. They had such a big family. They were both in Korea. My dad was in the Air Force and, and my, my cousin Ronnie was in um, the Army. They didn't even talk about much. And, but all my uncles were either in the Navy or the Marines. And my uncle Elmer was a Marine on Iwo Jima. And so I was trying to figure I'd like to know more because they didn't talk. So I would love to know what Uncle Elmer's unit was and what he did. I only know a little bit but none of them talked about it. I, I don't know anything. So I'm fascinated when I, I get an opportunity to meet somebody from that era. I guess I'm making up for lost time. I'm fascinated to listen to their stories. And I read all the, I just read and read and read about, especially World War II, but now I'm on to Korea and Vietnam. There's so much that we don't know that those men and women went through and how they endured and, and then how they uh, handle it when they get back here. A lot of them don't handle it so well. You know, they handle it thinking we got to be tough. And that's a mistake. Um, I mean, I've got friends in the police force that were that were over in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they keep quiet, you know, and you see it come to a head at, at times. And and that's why my work with the, the organization that I volunteer with while Operation Enduring Warrior is so meaningful to me because these men and women are have figured out that they have to at least talk, you know, and seek help and allow, allow themselves to be helped. A lot of them don't think they need help. And so I have to trick them many times into our programs by saying, I need you to help others. And boom, they'll come in. And then they realize they need help too, you know, and then it's therapeutic for them. But uh, I always describe it. Uh, there's some of the, the men and women that I've, I've been in contact with that I was personally responsible for getting them into the programs I described them a little bit. It sounds so awful, but like a, a, a stray dog a little bit, you know, they're, they're timid. You can't catch it to save it. And you keep leaving a little food, leaving a little food. And before you know it, I always tell them, I'm going to grab that sucker by the collar and drag it in, you know, and, and there's so many of our men and women that they, they just, they want to help. They don't want the help. And that's wonderful. I mean, that's therapy for them too. Yeah, well, I think service is what took them into those professions and service is kind of one of the roads to, to self-healing as well. Absolutely. That's why, you know, you become a police officer or a firefighter or other. I mean, you know, you look cool, right? Yeah, the whole cool factor. That's the funny joke. You look cool in your uniform, but you, you get into it. If you're getting into it for the right reason, you're, you're, you have the right heart. You want to go help. You want to make a difference in the world or you want to make a difference in your local you know, community, whether, you know, the firefighting and the law enforcement. That's why you're there if you're there for the right reasons. And that's why we all seem to get along so well, too. Because we all have the the mindset that we want to help and we want to give back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of the World War II generation, this, that's what I always refer to when people kind of have this this kind of faux alpha facade of you know, like I said, you know, the the Schwarzenegger, Rocky, all that the the bullshit vis uh, images of masculinity that we were raised on is when you look at the Band of Brothers series and the real men of Easy Company that are talking. And, all, and pretty much every episode, you can see one of them tearing up when they're recalling, you know, Bastogne or, you know, whatever it was and the people they lost. And with, when you take a step back and realize that that was 60 plus years later and they're still moved to tears, then how can you as a policeman or a firefighter or a plumber 
say, I'm too tough to have issues with my mental health? A hundred percent. It's funny you mentioned that. I just finished uh, one of the books I just read, finished it two nights ago. I've read a bunch of the Easy Company books, but I read the uh, the book by Sergeant uh, Don Malarkey, and he was w- one of the, the originals there. And he talks about how his best buddy was killed. Skip was killed. And he kind of poo-pooed it because he had to be tough. He had to, he was attaining the rank of sergeant, he had to be a leader. He had to be stoic, you know, for his men. And, and he wouldn't take help to go get a little relief. Uh, they offered him some relief to go behind the lines for a couple of days. Uh, Winters said, Hey, come, come run errands for me for a bit. And he wouldn't do it. And then he talks about late in life when he finally breaks down and he sees Skip's wife finally wouldn't go see her. And he wished he would have went sooner, you know, and you know, in my, uh, I still have, I, I was fortunate in my career. I didn't have, you know, I wasn't in a big shootout. I wasn't injured. You know, I get around some of the, the folks that I serve with Operation Enduring Warrior, the men and women that uh, I feel like have given more than me. You know, they've been shot. They've been, you know, attacked, things like that. For some reason, you know, for 30 years that I did this, I was fortunate. I was lucky, whatever. But I still have times where I remember the things that I did. Uh, we all have it, you know, and, and so I'll wake up and I'll think about there's a kid that had hung himself. He was 16. And I still I still have problems with that because I don't feel like I helped the family at the time, you know, and we all have it and we have to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely you know many a call rattling around my brain and, and it's been, you know, it has been dealt with. But it's still there. It's like a back injury that you you rehab. You know, if you don't keep doing the work, it will rear its ugly head again. One hundred percent. And I know for mine with this this young sixteen uh, year old, it happened right before Christmas. You know, and so I got there to the call. I was the first one at the call, and his um, his family they were they were just you know beside themselves, and they were begging me for help. And I knew he was gone. I could tell he'd been outside all night. They found him hanging in the backyard tree and, um, you know, doing this business. I knew he was gone and where my, my whole, it's hard for me to even talk about, but I, I struggle with the fact that I didn't help the family in the sense that they begged me to help him. And I knew he was gone, but rather than doing CPR or doing something, even though I knew he was gone, I tried to try to calm them down and, and they wanted me to work on him and the fire department come, come running in. And once they got in there, they immediately started CPR and that changed the outlook the family had, you know, there's somebody was working on him and off they went. And I, one of the guys said, Hey man, just, you know, don't ever, don't ever think that they're gone. Always start right away. And for me, I was thinking that, he was gone, you know, and my nightmare, and you can see I struggled to even put words to it is I didn't help that family. The sisters were there, the mom and dad were there. And I think I could have helped that family. And I failed by not helping, trying to help maybe as a facade, but showing the care, care for that, that boy and, and doing, doing some work, you know? Um, and so then they put his picture in the paper every Christmas the local paper. And I know when it's, you know, and it just, it gut shots me every year. I open the paper, 
and there he is, right? So um, anyway, it's, it's hard. I'm like the dick for meal of, of police work anyway. I, I tear up, but this, this it kills me every year. And so uh, I'm, not a, I'm not too bashful to talk about it anymore. But at first I, I kept quiet, right? You know? And, and so every year, and luckily for me, uh, James, I got a little closure on this. This is weird, but I, I was talked into going to see a medium and I lost my dad when he, when I was uh, like 13 or 14 uh, in 1983. And um, my wife would go see this medium and she would come home and tell me that the medium wanted to meet with me. And I, I think they're fake. And I told her, this lady's fake, man. And she said, well, I don't care. You know, it, it works for me. And, and so my wife would see her. And finally, my wife came home one day and she said, she wants to see you. Your dad wants to talk to you. And so I finally gave in and I went. And that's a whole other story. It blew my mind. It, I was a big cry fest because this lady blew my mind. And I know there's no way she knew about things. There, I mean, at first I told her she was fake. And she said she didn't care. Um, and then she just started blowing my mind with some stuff, but she started talking about this boy and my wife doesn't even know about this boy. And she told, she told me, he was saying that I helped him cross over and that, um, he had to do it. He had to do it. He had to do it. So I didn't know what that meant, James. So fast forward a couple of years and I'm in a meeting with one of the ladies at our office at the police department at Lodi PD. And, um, we come, we, we figure out that we knew this boy and she knows the family. And so then I disclosed what I, I learned from the medium and how bad I felt. And I was really, you know, a little emotional. And she said, well, let me tell you a little background about him is his mother and father didn't get along. The dad was a hardcore gang member and he would get drunk and, and beat on the mom and the kids. And, and um, it was awful. And after the, the boy committed suicide, the dad gave up alcohol and stopped doing all that. And his sisters went to college and the family's tighter than ever. And I just sat there, James, I was blown away that this, you know, how does this medium know this? And he had to do it. So I don't know, call it what you want, but it, I had my mind blown, but I, I still have those things that I carry with me. And I still feel horrible for that family that, I mean, I feel like a big fat failure, you know? Well, I'm going to challenge your you're thinking completely. I had a, a, a guest on Alex and one of her kind of specialties, she's a paramedic, but her specialty is death notification, something that they don't teach us to do whatsoever. And the last place I worked, they would come running in and start CPR and tell them to get them, you know, off the property because it was a theme park. Um, and they don't want people to die at this theme park. So they were just used to just dragging people off. Well, what you end up doing is taking up an ER bed giving that family a shitload more medical bills and giving them a glimmer of hope from, you know, a loved one who's already dead. So she challenged me and, you know, a lot of people listen to that episode. Sometimes the best thing to do is just tell the people that their loved one is gone, that they're dead, you know, and obviously there's a medical element, you know, like you said, you've got rigor, rigor and pooling and all these things and, you know, basicity on the monitor and there's this whole medical thing. But, you know, again, if someone is clearly deceased, you know, and obviously, you know, in your your line of work, you know the difference between, you know, that someone has a chance and someone who's definitely been gone for a while. There's, you know, 
there's an element that maybe it was the fire department. I don't know. I'm just totally Monday morning quarterback in this, but it might be that the fire department actually did more damage than good by their actions. All well-meaning, but it sometimes takes us more courage to look the family members in the eye and say, I'm so sorry, but your son is dead versus we load him up into a, an ambulance and we don't have to make that notification anymore. Now the doctors can at the hospital, you know what I mean? So I get the, the guilt completely, but I mean, if if there was an element where you saw an obviously deceased corpse at the end of that rope, you know, that you what you were trying to do may have actually been the better of the two options. And again, I'm just totally gaming it here, but you know, I've been a medic at times that told the crew, we are not taking this patient to hospital. We've done everything we can. We've done, you know, followed all the steps. They have already died. And I'm not going to put the family through more trauma by giving them folk, doing what, uh, hope, giving them what we call a show code just so that I can alleviate my guilt and shame and pass it on to someone else. No, you make a good point with that. Uh, it's funny. You, you just jogged my memory. I was training um, a, a guy and we went to a, a hanging. And when we got there, um, I, we performed CPR and the, uh, the, the person got a heartbeat back. We got the heartbeat back because they were dead, got the heartbeat back. Um, but a different situation. I mean, this was fresh. This happened versus, you know, the 16 year old boy, but, um, so we were quite proud of ourselves. And so we went to the hospital to follow up. We fought the ambulance went in and we followed in and this, this crusty old nurse, she came out and she said, hey, great job, guys. And I was like, wow, you know, high five. We did a great job. She goes, you just made him an effing, um, you just made him an effing uh, brain dead, uh, uh, I can't remember, a vegetable. And she walked off. And, she, and I was thinking we did a great thing, but we got his heart going and she said it was a bad thing, just like what you were saying. And he lived, I followed up on that. I think he lived four or five days and then he passed. But, you know, it was, it took the whole wind out of your sails that you think, you know, especially police, we're not trained like, you know, medics and fire. And um, I always joke with the fire guys, we don't have time to sit on the couch and study all those books. We have to work. We actually work. But anyway, <laughs> sorry, fire people that are listening. But, um, but you know, I, I was so proud of myself, right? You know, I saved this guy. And, and then she just said, nice job. Just like, kind of what you're saying you made him a vegetable and she walked off so thankfully i guess he did pass so. sounds like she had compassion fatigue but you know that aside you know, <laughs> there i mean if you if you got some sort of circulation back in our world that's that's a win because we don't know what damage has been done especially you know for example if it's a cold water drowning or something it may may end up yeah. being a successful save but that's the difference between that and you know now the eyes are bulging, the the joints are getting stiff, it's pooling, you know, that's a very, very obvious sign that we're way too late. And I had that once when I first started my last apartment, I had a battalion chief grab me by my radio belt and said, you will take this patient to hospital. And so when I got there, I apologized to the doctor. I'm like, hey, I was ordered to bring you a corpse. And he, he doppled the, uh, you know, scanned the heart and within three minutes, they'd already called it. You know, because I mean, his eyeballs were literally starting to get gelatinous when we were working. Yeah. Um, and uh, but there were lifeguards on scene ahead of us. It wasn't a drowning; it was just the the closest, you know, people. Um, yeah. And so now, great. Now that family has tens of thousands of dollars more, you know, bills, and 
you know, the we had to drag that person through the parking lot and all the other guests got to see that, you know, for what? For what? Yeah. Because you didn't have the fucking balls to say, I'm sorry, they've gone, you know, and and it's a, it's a such, I'm making it sound easy. It's really, really hard to differentiate between the two, but the inability to save, which you were, you know, dealing with with your 16 year old and I've dealt with as, a, as the grim reaper of EMS my whole career. You know, it, it sucks. It really, really sucks. But again, you've got to take a step back and go, what is best for, it's not the patient anymore. They're dead. So what is best for the family? And that, that sometimes takes the courage to say, even if it's a child, you know, I'm so sorry, but you know, your, your, your loved one is, is gone. They're dead. I'm, you know, and now we need to work on you. You're the people I need to worry about, you know, but, uh, like I said, way easier for me to stand behind a microphone now and talk about versus when you're uniform and you're staring at, you know, brokenhearted parents. No, yeah, that's that's the that's the worst thing ever is to be there with those parents, and especially you know kids, right? We old age is one thing we expect people to pass from old age, um, but when you see the kids, man, that's that's the worst. That's that's your nightmare situation right there, and you know firefighters and. And law enforcement, uh, we go through that, you know, quite often, way too much seeing kids, die, you know, pass, die, man, they die, man. And it's car crashes, uh, you know, it's just, it's awful. So. It is. Well, I would love to get back to kind of, you know, your childhood, um, start that kind of journey. Um, so tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born in Titusville, Florida, and uh, way back in the day, my mom and dad both worked at Kennedy Space Center. My dad worked for TWA, Trans World Airlines. He was a maintenance man out at Kennedy Space Center. Back in the day, I guess all the airlines came together to help us get to the moon. And so he was had a position out there working on the launch, you know, at the launch pads and the in the massive buildings, things like that. And my mom was an x-ray technician. She went to the University of Miami and she's from Massachusetts, but the family relocated down there after her dad passed. So she went to the University of Miami and ended up on base at uh, Kennedy Space Center as an x-ray technician. And she did x-rays on all of our astronauts. So she, quite cocky guy, she said, you know, back in the day, a young woman, but, um, yeah, so she she worked on a lot of those guys. Uh, my dad always had all the uh, the patches and the pictures of all the the launches, things like that. So I remember, as a, I still remember as a kid to this day. I was really small, but it was like it's like a nightmare for me. But I remember running home. There was an earthquake. I remember a fire and an earthquake. Well, what what it was? I was outside playing, and when they sent up one of the rockets, you know, and it shook, the, it shakes the ground in that area, and. And you see the smoke and the fire going up in the sky. And so I remember that vividly to this day. But um, so we got to watch a lot of the rocket launches. So from Titusville, Florida, and when a lot of the airlines pulled out as they became successful, they relocated my dad to Los Angeles. And my dad was born out in California. Uh, no, actually, he was born in, in South Dakota. My, my bad. But he, the whole family from those days, where I live right now in Lodi. Lodi and Galt, North and South Dakotans everywhere. They all came here. So my family came here and my dad was raised in the city of Galt. And 
So we relocated to, to, Lo, uh, to Los Angeles and then eventually back up to Galt when my dad was, my dad was sick. Uh, he got really bad asthma and heart failure once we got back to Los Angeles with the smog and it just triggered everything. So he had to medically retire and we, we moved to Galt for support with his family. And so my mom worked at a hospital in Sacramento, California as an x-ray technic, uh, technician and she was our breadwinner. My dad was on disability and I was basically raised in the city of Galt. I'm a Galtian. I tell everybody, I'm, we say Galtonian, but I, I prefer Galtian. So I went uh, through high school in Galt, uh, played all the sports, did all those things, and uh, graduated and eventually ended up in the police academy um, after one year of community college at, at Delta College. Played football there one year, and we didn't score any points. I was a kicker. It was quite boring to be a kicker on a team that wasn't scoring points. He'd kick off once, and you wouldn't see the field again. And my buddy said, let's – I want you to go to take the test to get into the police academy. I want to go to the police academy. And I had gotten him the job. We were working together at a meat market in Galt. So I had gotten him that job. And he said, hey, come with me to take this test. And I thought, shoot, I was watching Miami Vice back in the day. I love that show, man. I wanted to drive a Ferrari and live on a boat and have an alligator as a pet. So I went and took the test. And he failed the doggone test. And I was only 18. And I passed. And so I told my mom, she told me she'd pay for my college as long as I went all the way through. And I told her I was dropping out of college and I was going to go to the police academy. And the program I did was a, uh, it took a full year. I did a, 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 a night program police academy that they have out here. So I worked full time during the day and I went to the academy and I passed the academy and I was hired by Lodi PD a month after my 21st birthday. And that's where I, uh, that's where I stayed until. My 50th birthday, shortly after my 50th birthday, I was completely maxed out and I was topped out at my career. I was a captain. It, we uh, Our ranking structure went chief, then to two captains, and then down to the lieutenants. And I had made, I never thought in the, James, I never thought I'd make sergeant, man. So to make captain and work with my best friend who was the chief um, was phenomenal. And he was going to stay another four or five years. And I was like, hey, buddy, <laughs> I got to check out then. And I still loved it. So here I am. I'm a, I'm a retired dad hanging out at home here in Lodi. And where do you keep the Lamborghini and the, the alligator now? <laughs> I never, Lodi PD never gave me one of those. What? They gave me, I know, it was so, <laughs> and it, you know, and I wasn't out making giant drug busts like them there and, and speedboat chases. I missed out on all that. I did get to drive a natural gas van when I worked undercover. It had a 70-mile range. It had a 70-mile range. We got it for free, so they gave that to me as my my undercover car, because we could use it for surveillance. But I did get a 280Z, a beat up old 280Z they bought somewhere used, had a broken engine mount in it. So when you gassed it, the whole engine would shake. But And it was a manual transmission. Try driving that and use a police radio. But I drove that around when I worked undercover. So that's the closest I got was, was driving a 280Z, a beat up old 280Z around for a little bit. Well, and I think it broke everyone's dreams because they, they wanted to be those guys but then they get into pd and realize that there are grooming standards and you're not allowed to have a mullet anymore correct i mean heartbreaking. <laughs> i want to rock i want, <laughs> I want to rock that mullet again man peg my pants and yeah i don't know sonny crockett was the man um but yeah it was it was one of those things i always joke about that i joke to people that's that's kind of what i thought but then 
you're out at night just sitting in the car writing reports and you know it's not what you think so but it was it was the best thing for me i absolutely love i wanted to be an architect i always wanted to be an architect i started studying that in school i'd started i'd started drafting and start doing a drawing and i never completed because i couldn't sit still couldn't stop talking um, and police work was great for me because I was out and about. I got to be social. I got to be active. And I got to do pretty much everything in the, that we had at Lodi PD. I did everything. I got to do a lot of stuff I would have never done if I didn't take that career. Now, you mentioned about losing your father when you were 13. So with him working, you know, around obviously mechanics and, and, and chemicals and, you know, on a, on a, uh, uh, a, a project that has you know a lot of um, high octane fuel were any of the job related elements related to what took his life in the end you know we don't know back in the you know 70s when he was sick and uh you know you didn't hear about a lot of hey we're gonna go sue for you know exposure this or that i don't know he was you know he worked at twa he was out you know on the tarmac doing whatever you know, mechanical maintenance stuff he was doing and then around all the rockets and who knows, but um, he did have asthma. And I remember as a kid, he was always using a breathing machine when he'd have his attacks or he always had an inhaler. And, uh, but what I always worry about is my own well-being is he had a bad heart. And so people, doctors, you know, your family, anybody have a heart attack. My dad had multiple heart attacks, but my mom being in the medical field would clarify to me that his heart was bad from taking prednisone and all the, the, the medical stuff that he had. Yep. The steroids. That's what caused, she would tell me, that's what caused your father's heart to start failing. You got water around the heart, all that stuff from the asthma medications. And so he, you know, he was, he was a guy that was like the sun coming up and going down Mr. Reliable. So because he was disabled um, he would take us to school, my, my sister and I, and he would pick us up from school. And he was always at our football, my football practices, or I did soapbox derby racing, all these things. He was the guy that took us everywhere. We were always with him. And I remember the first time it ever happened, I was, I had to get a ride home with my uncle. And I was like, where's my dad? And he wouldn't tell me. And he had had a heart attack while we were at school. And so He had multiple heart attacks and one of my, you know, one of my, I guess, traumatic things that are etched in my head is my dad came home and told me and my mom told me that he came out of the hospital to die at home. I lost my mind. You know, I was, I don't know if I was 10, he lived like three more years, 10 or 11, but I freaked out because my dad came home to die in our house with me there, you know, and that's not supposed to happen. And he didn't, but I remember I was always really nervous because every day I'd go, you know, every, I'd check on him all the time, you know? And, um, and so he, when he did pass, it was a relief, it was a real relief for him. You know, I'm, I'm happy he's comfortable now. He struggled and I know he struggled to be with us. He fought to be with my sister and I, uh, that was one of the things that medium talked about. Um, it was, it was a mind blowing event for me, but, um, you know, he struggled and, you know, she told me he didn't want to die when I was there. He was telling her that is what he, she said. And, and now it kind of makes sense to me because he came home and he didn't. And when he went to the hospital, the last time he was there, he didn't want us there. And he, 
he waited for when we weren't around and that's what he was telling her. So, but it was, it was tough, James, you know, having, having that, you know, hearing that he's coming home to die. That was, that was crazy. Well, it's something I talk about all the time after, you know, having it, um, being educated on it myself, you know, Jake Clark always attributes to this. But, you know, when when I understood the value of childhood trauma on us, human beings, but especially in the uniform professions, and then you look at the way we view mental health in the first responder professions, oh, it's what you saw. Oh, you need time off because you went to this event. We miss such a giant piece of the puzzle, which is what happened to us before we put the badge on our chest or the uniform on our back. And... I would say probably three quarters of it. Let me put it this way. It's rare when I hear someone say, honestly, James, I had a great childhood and there's nothing really I can think about that was traumatic. That's a very, very small portion of everyone else. Everyone else comes on and there's, there's a spectrum from fostered, adopted, feeling unloved all the way through to sexually abused around, you know, drugs and alcohol, beaten, um, you know, and everything in between. So losing a parent, losing a sibling is another horrendous thing and and i can imagine that at 10 being told your dad's waiting to die and then for three years waiting for your dad to die that's you know that has got to take a toll on a young boy yeah it was one of those things that he would get better and so i'd have hope that you know that it would go away right it was a condition it would never go away but as a kid you'd think it would go away and then you would see him wheeze or you know, I remember we drove cross country. He took me cross country to go to back to Titusville to get my mom's uh, younger sister, my favorite aunt, Aunt Kathy. She lives out by you in in uh, Satellite Beach, Florida. And so my favorite aunt. And um, so we drove cross country in a pickup truck and he would start having his wheezing and really he would struggle to breathe. And I remember as a kid, what my the way I've, I, I dealt with that, James, is I would go to sleep. I didn't know what to do. I was so little, you know, seven, eight years old. And I would freak out thinking he was going to die on me, you know, and I would wake up and he'd be fine. And so that was a kind of a coping mechanism for me when we would travel and he got into trouble like that. And then we'd pick, pick my aunt up that she's 10 years older than me. So we traveled back and I felt a little more comfortable because I, you know, I, she was with us, but it was scary going across. It was a great trip. I, I love, you know, that opportunity to be with my dad at that time. But um, yeah, it, it was, it was one of those things. And you don't realize though, I didn't realize James that it was doing that to me. Right. It was just, I feel like everybody, you know, it's just like what's going on in my house goes on everybody's house, you know, and that's, you don't realize until you get older that no, it's totally different. You know, this individual life, right. That people have. Um, but I think it taught me a lot too. It taught me a lot. I We had a 25-acre ranch. And so when he passed, I had to take care of that solely by myself. But I had to do a lot of it anyway because he was disabled. So, I mean, he, he walked around, did everything, but he he really couldn't do a whole lot because of his breathing abilities. So I had to learn at a young age to take care. We had, we had some cows and we had, you know, some little crops. We'd plant some corn and things like that. He was teaching me things, you know. I didn't realize that. So, I mean, I had a great life, I would say. But I had there was trauma there. You're right, and you don't think of it as trauma. No, exactly. I think we we downplay it because you always assume that someone else's is worse, you know. And we you can't compare trauma. You hear that from people that have been through horrendous things, like Frank, you know. Um, 
it sounds like this medium experience was pretty powerful for you. It's not something that's normally brought into conversation. And here you are, a veteran law enforcement officer, you know, skeptic. So if if you are comfortable telling, I'd love to hear, you know, what was it that took you from skeptical to, you know, now I'm believing what you're saying because of what I've just, you know, witnessed or heard with my own ears. <laughs> it's uh it was freaky. Um so I was a skeptic because, you know, you're you're married to your wife, she knows pretty much everything about you, right? So I just figure they're in chit chatting and this lady's drawing, you know, she's they gotta have good memories, is what I'm thinking. And so as she talks with my wife, um, and I love this lady. So I, I'm a i I'm a believer in her now, but um I think he, I'm thinking she's making notes, right? And she's gonna just come in and 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 she knows everything. So when I went in there, James sat down and she's uh, like, "Well, what treatment do you want?" And I said, "What are you talking about treatments?" And she says, "Well, there's treatments that I do." And she goes, "Doesn't your didn't your wife tell you?" And I said, "No, I don't ask her. It's private. I don't ask her. You know, that's her that's her gig, and that's fine." And um, so she tells me, well, he's here. She just stops. He's here. And I'm like, who's here? She goes, your dad is here. And that's where it just got freaky. And I was like, so I just looked at her. I said, I don't believe in you. And she goes, you don't have to believe in me, but he's here. And he wants you to know this. So he kept, she said, he's, he's apologizing. He's saying he's sorry. Um, he, he's sorry. He's so hard on you. And I said, well, he was hard on me, but I still, no, you're not getting me with this. And I wouldn't, I wasn't feeding her answers. If she, I felt like if she was asking and I said, no, no. And so long story short on that, she was saying, and the first thing that rocked my world was he left me and it was hard on me. I said, no, it was harder on my sister. She was younger than me. She goes, no, he's saying it was harder on you. And so we were arguing about that point. And she said, he's, he's saying you had to be her dad. He's sorry that he left you and you had to be her dad and you had to do all those things. And he feels bad that, that he didn't prepare you. And and then when he was being hard, he was he was trying to prepare you. When he was hard on you, saying he was trying to prepare you, and he wanted to last long enough to prepare you. And so, as we went through there, the one thing that really got me, James, was she. Uh, it's I, there's a smell I love being being a being a kid from the the country. I love the smell of uh, silage. I don't know if you know what silage oh, is. Oh, I do. I grew up it's, on a farm. Okay, yeah. So silage, the ground up corn, it stinks. It stinks so bad. But the next door neighbor to us had a had a dairy, and Mr. Cordoza would help us on our ranch. And so he had a he had a dairy. I love that smell. And I love the smell of cow poop, man. I just love it. I go by the dairies. I roll the windows down. My family gets mad. And I'm just <laughs> just taking it in. So this lady says, "Well, your dad says that there's a smell. There's a smell that that reminds you of him." And I'm like, "No, no, no smell. I don't have a smell that reminds me of my dad." Well, I thought she was trying to lead me to these colognes. Back when I was a kid, back in the day, uh, you would buy these decorative cologne bottles. I remember a stagecoach one I gave him and stuff. And I thought she was going to this cologne thing, you know, and I, was, I wasn't giving in on her. And then finally she said, he's saying, uh, he's saying there was a, a, a dairy. <laughs> I start crying. <laughs> I just start crying, man. I was like, holy hell. She said, he's saying that you can see it gets me every time because how, how would she know? But she's like, she's saying that every time you smell that he's with you. And it's just like, that was a, a, a mind blower. Cause I know 
there's no way my wife is linking and giving her that, you know? So it's, it's, it was crazy. But, um, and then she, she talked about some other stuff. Like I told her, I said, I feel like I was saved during my career many times because my dad, I know he watches over me. I had this feeling as I grew up without him that he's with me and he's watching over me. And so she was re- she was just reassuring that he's always with you. He's always with you. But she said, I, I said, well, as a police officer, my mom would never ride with me because she said, I never want to watch you get killed. I said, mom, I'm not going to get killed. You know, she, my mom in 30 years never rode along with me. She wouldn't do it. So uh, I said, well, I, I just felt like I had an extra edge because I know my dad wouldn't, wouldn't allow it. That's the way I felt. She, she said, well, your dad is, I'm seeing that he's in the car with you. He's in the front seat. And then she stopped. She says, no, he's not in the front seat. No, she, he's in the back seat. She said, I'm sorry. I got it mixed up. She goes, he's in the back seat. And he did say he did help you. He did change things. He, he did everything he could to make, because there was times, man, I don't know how the heck somebody didn't shoot me. I mean, they had the gun, they had the knife, they, man, I blew it. Or, you know, I just, I, I would just shut her afterwards. And she said that he was taking care of me and he was always with you in the car. She said, but she said, I'm, I'm seeing it that he was in the back seat and she changed it. No, he was in the front seat right next to you. Cause she goes, wait a minute. I'm seeing you had a dog. And I said, yeah, I had a police dog. She goes, well, the police dog, you know, he was in the front seat because you had a police dog and then she stopped. And this was, I mean, it was really weird. I can go, I go on and blow people's mind with it, right, wrong or indifferent. There's some people that don't agree with this, but she's like, your dog is coming through. And I'm like, what? You know, you can hear it now. I'm like, this she's crazy your dog he's saying that you've got a new dog i mean it's the, the people out you guys that are listening are probably having your minds blown you can't even keep up with this conversation i'm jumping around but that's how my mind got blown i'm like so we're going from my police dog and you're talking about a dog that i have at home she says yeah your dog is saying your dog has behavioral problems and and he's got um, anxiety and so do you and you guys were put together to help well my new police uh, I, I rescued a dog I rescued a German Shepherd. I always wanted to get another one. I got him. And she said, your dog is telling me to tell you he can see you through his eyes. And I'm like, what? You know, so, but she's linking all this stuff together, James. And it just, there's just no way that, that she could have known all this. And I, I wasn't feeding. There was no, I was not going to feed her this. And so there was just some weird things, bud. But she talked about me being, she said, you shot somebody. And I was like, ha ha, no, never shot anybody. You're wrong. And <laughs> Thank God. And so I had Because <laughs> you yeah, had me I at had the dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she says to me, she says, no, no, no. This guy was shot and you were over him. So you shot him. And I said, no, no, I, I've never shot anybody. Well, he's thanking you for crossing over. Uh, you helped him cross over. She used that a couple of times. And she said that he's, you were there. And I said, well, oh, you know, and I was like, my wife never knew this story, but I was first on scene for this bad character in Lodi that we were chasing all the time. And as a sergeant, I got on scene first and he was shot. He was laying there and he was dying. And so I was with him and I was trying to get what we call that, you know, that uh, a life, his, his last of life um, statement about who killed him. Right. And you can use that in court. So I, I was, hey, man, you're going to be OK. We got you. Who did this? You did this. And I was really being compassionate with him. But it it. She says he was, you know, thanking me for being there with him and being compassionate to him. And, you know, I was being compassionate, but, you know, there was a little bit of selfishness there. I wanted to know who shot him. We still don't know. But 
Um, and then she, that's when she went on to the 16 year old kid. She stopped. She, it was weird. She would just go and just stop. And she said, somebody else is thanking you. And that's when she was going along. And, and again, I was like, no, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. And then she said, no, a 16 year old boy. And I was like, oh my goodness gracious, where is this coming from? Right. So yeah, it, it, it was, I came out of there. I, I was there. My wife called me. She kept calling me while I was there. And so finally, when I was done, it was over two and a half hours. I was with this lady and that's not how long you are usually there. And I was spent, James. I had to go home and go to take a nap. I was worn out emotionally. She wore me out, man. So, I mean, if never, I'm not one of those guys that's a believer in paranormal and stuff, but I don't know how she did it. People say they have tricks or whatever. I, I don't know how she did it, man. So I did feel better myself. I felt better that my dad and I got, I got a, I felt like, um, you know, I miss him all the time. And, uh, she said that he was afraid that I was going to end my life to be with him because they were, we're that close. And he was telling me that, you know, he doesn't want me to come to him yet. That was a weird thing she kept saying. And I don't have, I didn't, there was nothing like that, but she said that she was explaining things, but she said that when you sleep, when you were sleeping, that you would, you, you would spend time with him. And she would tell me about previous lives. There was just, again, some of it seems far-fetched. I'm one of those guys I still don't believe, right? She was telling me these things, but she said, you're with him a lot and you're with him all the time. And he's fearful that you're going to want to be with him. And he doesn't want you to be with him now. He, he says, you can't come to me now. So it was still makes me emotional, but it was just really freaky for me. So, but it, I, I feel like I got closure and now I'm fearful for some of the, my friends that might listen to this. I think I have some friends that really don't believe in this. I, I'm sorry to you folks if if you think ill of, of us for, for doing this, but it was helpful for me, you know, so. Well, I think it's it's one of those things where I think, sadly, there are a lot of shysters out there that probably give that world a bad name. But, I mean, there are a lot of shysters under the name of, you know, Christianity and Islam and Judaism that also give, you know, religions a bad name. So, but it doesn't t take away from the fact that ultimately we have no idea what happens after we go. I just finished watching um, Afterlife, Ricky Gervais's show. And really, it's kind of like, you know, really stirred up some <laughs> some things in, in my head about, you know, mortality and stuff. But my wife is is very kind of spiritual and um she went to see a medium after she lost her boyfriend before me who took his own life um and again supposedly was saying things that no one else could have known um you know so my thing is this why not you know if if someone's just duping you and trying to take your money then yeah shame on them but there's a reason why some of these other spiritual you know arts have survived for hundreds and hundreds of years you know fortune tellers will, will go back from the beginning of time almost so um you know are they all right yes but i mean i mean excuse me are they all right no but you know are there some people that are more connected i i believe so i really do and, and i think we poo poo that kind of thing but how many of us feel a loved one with us sometimes like you did you know so what is that how do you describe that how do you label that is it jesus is it god is it dad is it your 16 year old son that you lost i mean to me we started as essence and we leave as essence so how do we know and we don't even know what the brain does <laughs> how do we know what what happened prior and what happens next yeah it's and it wasn't like i've only been back one time 
I, I lost my cousin. He was a, a New York City fireman. And he was over there during 9-11 and did a lot of work there in the rubble. And he passed of cancer related to 9-11. And I was, when I went over there, I was thinking that, you know, his, uh, his name is John McNamara, uh, Johnny Mac. And I thought, well, Johnny Mac is going to come through, man. I was, I was kind of like, this would be cool if, you know, and, and nope, she never talked about that. And I went back one other time and it was completely different, James. It wasn't like my, it was not mind blowing. It wasn't like, it was almost therapeutic, but, um, you know, she actually knew some stuff. Uh, she she brought up a couple of things that that kind of was going on in my career, and we talked a little bit about that. But it was almost more therapeutic just talking to her. That's all it was at that time. So, you know, my, someone might say, "Well, then she was done." You know, leading on. But I, I don't believe that this woman, this woman did not. There's no way. And she was explaining that, you know, there are people out there that, you know, like I said, spiritual that they are these people, I guess, you know, people will go to them to, to, to get to us, right. These mediums, there are medium folks out there and right, wrong or indifferent. I, I had an experience and uh, I was, I'm very happy for it. And um, she brought up, she told me that my dad would not uh, allow himself to die if I was there. And so, you know, and that was some of the things that she, she brought up. So it was, it was interesting, James. Absolutely. So another thing about this afterlife show that I mean I was sobbing like a little girl multiple times during watching this, um, you know, and it was about grief. But I think I just did a post on it today. Actually, you probably have the same. You seem, as you said, when you know you you cry a lot as a as an officer. I mean, why would you not cry at a sixteen year old kid that felt like he needed to hang himself to resolve any you know problems that were going on? That's something that is you know worthy of crying. Um, but I think with this show, what it did so well was it. It showed the pain of all the different characters. Some were grieving from, you know, losing in uh, Ricky's character's wife dies of cancer. There's another one who's just deeply lonely. Um, you know, just all these different things. But it's that empath element. You know, it's that compassion that drives us into the professions that we do that sometimes gets lost when we become so tired and beaten down. But his healing element is his German Shepherd. As we just took a very brief break then, you know, my German shepherds were barking, yours were barking. <laughs> so, you know, I've yep. got I've got two as well. And that's absolutely, you know, one of my most powerful healing elements of my life are my dogs. So talk to me about joining the canine program and, and your experiences with Lodi with uh, that position. Boy, that's uh that was one of the things that when I was a young officer, I, I got hired right at twenty one. And, you know, you're, you're a rookie, you don't know what you're doing, and you're trying to find your way. We'd have calls for service going on that were, you know, man, super exciting, right? They'd be in a car chase, a foot chase, or, you know, somebody with armed with a gun in a standoff situation. Well, I would get sent to still monitor the streets. I would have to go out and respond to calls and do stuff. And I'd be listening to the radio to the exciting things. And... I always wanted to, I always had intentions of becoming a SWAT team member and, but I was, you know, too green to do that. And so I was just, I, I finally dawned on me one day, who do they call to every scene ahead of SWAT or everything? It's canine. And I thought, man, that would be an awesome job. So I started going out right away and to get on our program back in the day, you had to volunteer. Now with all the regulations and workman's comp and, 
you got to pay them if they're out there, all these things. I would volunteer and I would go out to canine training and get bit by the dogs. It's just, they put me in the suit and make me go hide and I get bit and no training. So one time the dog, one of the dogs went up into the sleeve of the, the big bite suit I had on. I pulled my hands up in the sleeves, which I had learned that was wrong, but I was brand new. The damn dog got up in the sleeve and got, he bit all the way up to the top of my middle finger, all the way up there. He had my whole middle finger down in his mouth his teeth around it, and I—I I was sure it was going to come snapping off. And he—and I was going with him. I was giving as he was pulling him back in a way. I was trying to go with him so I didn't lose my finger. Hurt like hell, scared the hell out of me. Um, and I just learned what I was doing wrong. And they finally brought me into the program, and I started learning to catch the dogs. And then you learn to read the dogs when they're searching because I'm hiding, and I can see when they when they're finding me and the officer's not recognizing when they're finding me. So it's a really important way to become a canine handler is to be the, we call them agitators or the decoys. You really need to learn. Now a lot of them don't have to do that. They don't have to put that work in. They get a dog and they just don't know. They don't know shit, James. I'll say it. They don't know shit. And we give them a dog and then bad things happen. So I did that for mm, probably about two years. And I was fortunate enough in, in 92 they, uh, they brought me onto the program. So I'd been there just over two and a half years. And I bought my own police dog and he had no training. This German Shepherd, my buddy helped me go go out and test dogs. And we tested him out. And uh, his name was Razor. I named him Razor's Edge. Razor. And so Razor, uh, I brought him to training. We started training and the guys taught me how to train. And and so I was this young buck with, uh, with a police dog named Razor. And Luckily, you know, he passed certification. I passed mustard and I, I worked for four years with him and uh, he was my best friend. He was the day I lost him. You talk about trauma. That's another traumatic time in my life is when I had to, I sat with him while we put him to sleep, you know, and he was, we are joking the canine world and anybody that might listen, that's a canine handler. The joke is you can talk all, all the shit you want about a guy's wife, but don't talk shit on his dog. And that's true, man. You, you couldn't, that's a heartbreaker when somebody talks bad about your dog. So it's, it's, that's how tight you are. I think the, one of the closest times I've come to a real street fight was in a dog park for that very reason. <laughs> I was laid yeah. a guy out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't talk about my dog, man. Exactly. And I know he saved me a bunch, you know, there was times where I had this really, it was like, like I said, you, you deal with same characters, you know, when you work in, in, in police in a small city, you know, Lodi is about 60,000 people. And so, uh, I ran into the same gang members, things like that. One day, this, this gang member wanted to fight us. It's in the garage, and he was challenging us. And so I went and got my dog and brought the dog over. And he immediately, immediately, the guy turned around and submitted. And he's in our booking cell in Lodi, and we're booking him into the jail. And he's pointing, and he's going, I'd fuck you up. I'd fuck you up. I'd fuck you up. And then he points at me, but you cheated. You brought that dog. I ain't fighting no fucking dog. And I was like, hey, bud, you know. He's a, he's a tool. He's not going to let me get hurt. I always, that was the other thing. When I, for four years, when I had my dog, Razor, we don't have uh, police cars like we had back in the day. Back in the day, our police car with the canine had no cage in it. So the windows were dropped down in the back. He could come and go as he pleased. And there was no cage in the car. So he could get in the front seat, which was a bad thing because he'd come up in between the seats on me a lot and lean on me or put his nose in my face while I'm driving. Um, 
he would he ate my lunch one time he ate my lunch <laughs> one time and i i came out and he was hiding in the corner when i came and got in the car and the the baggie was open i don't know how he got the baggie open but the sandwich was gone i got so mad i got in the back there and i shoved the sandwich down his uh, the baggie down his throat and i was telling him you want to eat you got to eat the rest of it and he was he was you know trying to get away from me and never again he touched my food but um you know he was always there watching me he would get up on that window picture a big german shepherd he would perch his two front legs up on the windowsill and he would be up over the top of the top of the car his head over the lights and everything watching so when i would get out of the car and make contact with people i'd be dealing with them and he would be up behind me eight foot in the air head eight foot in the air big wide german shepherd chest watching and barking and at any minute i could you know give him a command he would go he wouldn't leave the car and i had guys tell me hey man I was going to run, but your damn dog was, you know, towering out that window watching. I just knew that when I had Razor, I had my backup at all times. Now, with that, I talk a lot, you know, with obviously a lot of the pe- people that come on here that are in law enforcement are usually in great shape, usually, you know, jujitsu or Krav Maga, you know, practitioners of some sort of martial art. And you hear this over and over again. They tend to go on, go hands on a lot less because of their confidence, because of the deterrent of them being a formidable force. What element do canines bring as far as, you know, of course, protection of the officer, but also reducing killing, you know, people that you're trying to pursue because, again, they're a deterrent and or the bite itself stops you from having to shoot the person? So canines... For me, when I was a canine handler for four years, when I had my dog with me, I didn't have people challenge me. I didn't have people want to fight. I didn't have to go hands-on. I didn't have to do that. They would turn around and submit uh, almost always. Now, if I was in a car chase or if I was on a perimeter of an area and people ran, uh, they took their chances at times. But for for me, when I went out there, I didn't have to use that. So you're right. It uh, you know, there was no, I didn't have to go hands-on. So therefore the opportunity for people accusing me of being heavy handed, me getting hurt, they getting hurt. It didn't occur because they saw the dog. And um, so that was, that was a, an element there that, that the dogs brought. Now, as far as uh, being a lethal force versus less lethal, the, the thing about a canine is that's the only tool that we have that I can dispatch upon you and I can call back. I can shut it down. So you run away from me. I can send the dog. You give up. I can call the dog back. I can recall the dog. You're not going to get bit. If you do what you're supposed to do, you don't get bit. Now, are there accidents? There are. Okay, they're not perfect. I can't pull a bullet back. When I pull the trigger, I cannot take it back. Taser, I can't take the taser back. I swing that baton at you and hit you with it. I can't take it back. I can take the dog back. Properly trained, well-trained dogs, I can call them back. So that's one of the things when, so you talk about canine work in my life, my development as who I am taught me to public speak. I was very uncomfortable speaking in public, but as a canine handler, I had to do demonstrations, go to see the kids and talk at the schools, go before city council and talk or rotary clubs, things like that. Everybody wants to talk to you. So I learned to talk. I learned what the dogs do, how their nose works, their olfactory systems, all that stuff. Um, and so I became comfortable speaking. And one of the things we talked about was this is the only tool that the Lodi police have 
that we can call back. And we would demonstrate that. We worked really hard on our, we called it a call off. There's so many different things, but we called ours a call off. I can send my dog, you're running, and I can call him back. Now, most of the times when you see agencies do that, the dog, because they have prey drive, if the decoy continues to run and you try to call your dog back while he's running or she's running away, a lot of times dogs still don't want to call up because that prey is still running away. So a lot of times they'll do the demonstration where they'll, their decoy will stop. When they stop, the prey drive stop. You know, it comes down. So it's easier to get your dog to recall. We worked really hard at Lodi on runaway call-offs because that, that is the highest point. They're chasing that ball that's rolling away, and you got to get them to come back. And we worked super hard on that, and we were prideful. We would win competitions. We would use it on the street. You know, it, it, it was the dogs wouldn't come out of the car. We would we would train with these windows down. And part of our certification was you had to go a full 30 seconds of wrestling with somebody out in front of the car. A guy's in the bite suit, too. That's their toy. And I have to wrestle with them, and the dog cannot break from the car. He can bark. He can be up in the window. So he do all these things. But if he comes out, hits the ground, it's a failure off the street. Dogs got to stay until I tell them. And that's one of my preachy things I have with canine. There's two ways dogs are used in police work. There's a revering dog where when they, they find a suspect who's hiding, they're supposed to sit and just bark at him. And it's okay to bite if the guy or gal or your suspect makes enough of a motion. So the dog is making the decision. Oh, that's enough. I'm going to bite him. Our dogs were taught to go find and bite. You give the warnings. You'd warn the heck out of them. If the dog finds you, he may bite you. And so I am the one telling them. I've, I've assessed the situation. I've made sure it's safe the best of my ability. I've decided that I'm going to release the dog. And if the dog finds him, it could bite him. The revering dogs, and they're phenomenal, man. That they, they freak me out when they, they are so – they're good revering dogs. But sometimes a revering dog makes a bite. And the dog should sit and bark at you. And, again, there's allowable when they move, they do stuff, they run, they break, they whatever. Then they can bite. But So there's two schools of thought. But our dogs were finding and biting dogs, and they had to stay in the car or they failed. Um, so yeah, it's, you, it's a great tool. It's a great tool, less lethal tool. People would say, well, that's a deadly, the dog will kill people. No, um, it's super rare in this world that a dog kills a human really rare. I mean, I know of one instance through my canine time and I was aware of the time, I, I guess a dog went under a car and bit a guy and ha happened to bite him in the throat. Okay. Guy died. Dogs don't target, you know, they'll bite whatever they can get. You know, of course, they go after our arm and our legs. We're in our suits. They're easy. But they'll bite you in the butt. They'll bite you in the face. They'll bite you in the hand. They'll bite you in the thigh, you know. Um, they, they don't do it because they're mean. They're doing it because it, it's more of a game to them. They really think it's a game because that's the way it's brought on. They're not vicious animals. So uh, they're a great tool. And they do alleviate. San Diego PD had a lot of officer-involved shootings when I was working in canine. And San Diego decided they did a study and they had more police canines in San Diego than they had in Los Angeles because they found that they were shooting people with baseball bats. They were shooting people with golf clubs and things like that. And with a dog, you could let a dog go. You don't want to let a dog go on a guy with a gun because the dog, it's a, it's a suicide mission or the knife. Yes. You, you try, you see, hear about it all the time, but the guy's going to stab very highly likely he's going to stab the dog to defend him himself or shoot the dog. So there's other ways around that. But um, San Diego did that and they, their numbers dropped. They had one of the biggest canine units in the world at the time. 
Amazing. We just put some, you know, an idea in my head. Well, firstly, you know, you have this understaffing and it, and it, it just terrifies me that we have law enforcement officers one to a car that respond on their own to these, you know, these instances, whether, whether it's someone's armed or whether just someone twice the size, you know, we can't all be 280 pounds of pure muscle, you know, human beings just aren't built like that. So I can see the application of putting more canines just in units. If you can't afford to pay another police officer with pensions and benefits and all that stuff, then another canine would definitely be, you know, a part solution. But another thing that kind of resonates with me, because I got to witness it myself in my son's school, their first ever Code Red, you know, active shooter that ended up, thank God, being a false alarm. But we actually had a real one at a high school, literally a few weeks later in Ocala. Um, but the the school safety element, what would be your opinion of um, a, you know, safety officer, a law enforcement officer at a school being a canine officer to add that ed- that one more level of deterrent to these opportunistic shooters that we see come into these schools. So in that situation, that dog, well, number one, use a dog with that chaos is going to be impossible to use the dog. In my opinion, all the kids or, you know, any business people are going to be running and screaming Um we did so much active shooter training when I was on the SWAT team and I, and then I provided to the, to the, um, to the department, we make it as chaotic as possible. And the SWAT officers, well, any officer for that matter, any officer, we taught all of our officers, you just got to go in. That's why they pay us $10 million a year to be, you know, cops. We were paid just like a NFL player. We, we make so much money. We're rich people, but <laughs> we get paid because we put our lives on the line. But you have to go in there. And so you're going to have so many people moving. That dog doesn't know who or what it's going to go after. So I don't think it would be a deterrent. We, we use dogs in Lodi with the, with our school resource officers, but they were narcotics dogs, you know, or, or you know, ammunition or, you know, uh, bomb dogs that could smell out maybe, you know, the, the ammunition, the, the, the powder, but it was mostly for narcotics. They would use it to search the, for narcotics in the lockers and stuff. But I think it would be too chaotic for that dog to focus on where it needed to go. Um, but it would be awesome in an ideal, I mean, it's going to sound so awful to say, but if the person turned their attention to the dog and was shooting at the dog, it allows us as police to get people out and shoot them not being shot at because they would be focused on the dog. However, it's just not a scenario, I think, for, for a dog. Um, we deployed our dog on a, we had a SWAT dog and we deployed him on a guy that was armed, but he was, uh, either playing like he was asleep or he's passed he was passed out it turned out but when the guy got bit by the dog uh he was in such pain and he was so focused on holding the dog's head the dog bit him in the groin and the guy came to and was holding the dog's head he had a handgun with him he was laying there with a handgun he was going to ambush us but we outweighed him and he, he was drunk so he fell asleep he was hiding behind his pool pump in the decorative rocks he was in a great location we used a bomb robot to find him and so we let the dog go in because he wasn't answering up. The dog bit him. And then we came in and, and took control of his arms. And when we handcuffed him, he was laying on a handgun, a 45. And so he wasn't, he couldn't think to go grab that gun because he was in such pain that he was just trying to hold the dog off. And so it was a great tool in that situation. But, you know, you got 2,000 kids running through hallways screaming for help. The dog is going to be biting. He doesn't know what to, he doesn't know who to get. You can't get them focused. So. Yeah, well, that's that's you know that's why I 
ask you because, I mean, you know, some ideas sound great on paper and then, you know, you ask someone who actually knows what they're saying and that wouldn't work. So that being said, then you, you had obviously the patrol experience and you had canine, you had SWAT. What would, what is your kind of philosophy and you have children too of the best kind of, uh, principles when it comes to school safety and we have for example at my son's school there was a a resource officer that did the very opposite of what should have happened and my son you know ended up being uh being sent on a mental health hold because he had the audacity to cry in class one time so complete fucking abuse of power there and you know the fact that she's still wearing a badge appalls me but that's a whole different conversation but there are some amazing resource officers in fact the one that was at this school that we had the shooting at heroically ran towards the gunfire luckily that particular student fired once a teacher really calmed him down he dropped his weapon and then the resource officer came and took him into custody however he didn't know that he ran towards gunfire so i've seen both sides of the spectrum how do we make our schools as safe as possible in this current environment that we're in man i don't think we can make anything as safe as possible anymore, but education um, and the kids need to know where to go. And I have my own personal opinions. I, I taught my daughter. She was at, um, at the school she was at. I don't, I don't totally agree with kids locking themselves in rooms because you just become trapped. And at the layout that the school at my daughter was at, I told her, I, I, I told her personally, you will go away from the gunfire there was a door to the outside from each room and a door in the hallway. Said if it's if they're shooting, you know, if the shooting's in the outside, go away from it through the other door out. I want you to get out of that building and I want you to just run down the street as far as you can go. Just keep cooking. It's hard to hit something that's moving. Get the heck out of there. I don't. I don't really like seeing these kids corralled up in places and then the shooters are moving around in there and it takes a lot of time and then they just find a room or a door. It's barricaded. They can shoot through the door or the wall. The walls don't stop things. The bull, uh, the doors don't stop things. There's always glass. They can see through it. That's just me. Now, you know, there's all kinds of professionals that teach this, you know, what to do. I want them to get away, you know, get away. Now, of course, oh, you know, there could be one shooter with a secondary shooter. There could be all kinds of stuff. I want my kid to run like hell, be a moving target, get out of there fast. Um, I think police resource officers are valuable because people take the uh, the path of least resistance. So if if I'm planning to go shoot a school up and I know the cop is there every day like clockwork, armed and is attentive, I, I really don't want to do it. I don't want to take the cop on. That's usually what ends these things is when the police start getting close, they either kill themselves or they run away, they escape, um, or they take us on. They're going to focus on us because we have the guns. And we'll exchange with them versus them just shooting at unarmed people. So my personal opinion is I I think the resource officers are are fantastic. I personally, I didn't like, we had two schools of thought in our city. They should be dressed down. They should be in polo shirts and softer looking for the kids. And we want to establish a relationship. I never went, I was never a school resource officer. I never went to their training programs and their, the, the, the theory behind it. My theory was our school resource officers should be in exactly what they wear when they're driving around in a black and white car on the street um, and handling calls. Those kids need to get comfortable around a police officer and see that this police officer is a human. 
This police officer is approachable. This police officer is not there to hurt them. They're there to be to, to be a resource for them. They could be a friend, what have you. They We are a safe place. Now, in your situation with your son, that's terrible. All I can say on things like that is we have fantastic doctors. We have crappy doctors. We have fantastic uh, podcast hosts and we got jerks, you know, and who knows what happened there. And we're all human. We're not infallible. Who knows what the heck this officer was thinking when they decided to handle your son. I, I, I couldn't even imagine. Um, I would, I, I, I don't even want to comment because that sounds horrible, but I think having the officers on, on scene are, are great, but they need to be there. They, you know, and, and these, these kids that are planning stuff, they're, they're smart. They'll plan it when the officer's gone or on vacation. They know it, but I think resource officers are fantastic, and I'd like to see a more more of them, more of them in uniform, and and that would help create. So many people are afraid of the officers. Then they, if they get to know us, are like, "You guys are so cool." I was traveling across country. <laughs> what I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, James, I got to do the cool stuff. I really did. You know, I got to drive an armored car from Detroit, Michigan back to Lodi. It was cheaper to do it that way when we bought it. So my partner and I wore identifiable polo shirts uh, and cargo pants, and we had our guns because we were in a marked armored vehicle. We were in a place in the Midwest, and uh, we were talking, we were joking with each other. And the people, and then we were joking with the people in there, and a lady came up and she goes, why are you guys acting like this? And it caught us off guard. And we're like, what do you mean? She goes, you guys are nice. You guys are approachable. Why are you guys so nice? I said, I don't understand. I kept, we were like, we, is this a joke? She goes, well, I'm from this area near Chicago and the cops, they would never do this. They would never talk to us like this. They would never let their guard down. Why do you guys do it? And then we asked her, was it, why wouldn't we do it? Why, why, would, why wouldn't we do this? It seems this is normal to us. So I think sometimes when we, and as I teach at the police academy now, I teach them, we are responsible for the young officers now are responsible for how people view us. We are all nationwide. One, look at what happened in Minneapolis. That one turd has caused so much, not just for Minneapolis, himself and Minneapolis, all law enforcement, right? That turd. And around I tell the them, world. as I teach them, around the world. And I tell them, as I teach them, I teach use of force there. That's, that's my curriculum. And I teach them that. When you guys are out of the car and you're in Starbucks, talk to people. I know you got to look cool and you got to put your hand on your gun and you do your, and I always play it up, right? You're going to do this stuff. Talk to the people, smile, interact. You guys change that perception. You're responsible for it. Yes, others have effed it all up, but we're responsible for changing that perception. We should be approachable. There's times you got to have that look, right? I'm going to go into a house full of people that want to take me on. And I might be scared, but I tell them, you got to fake it till you make it, man. You better not act scared, show scared, run scared, because they'll eat you alive. You got to have that stoic. But when you're out in the Taco Bell or in the, you know, the coffee shop, talk to people, build relationships. You never know in the community, sometime you might need a donation for an armored vehicle. That's how we got it. Hey, we had a great relationship with our community. They raised almost $300,000 to buy us an armored vehicle in the city of Lodi, the community. They wave at us. We always joke. I was a recruiter. Five fingers. They wave at us with all five fingers, you know, because we treat them right. Be responsible. Treat them as humans. Now, you know, if you have to defend yourself, defend yourself. 
You know, if you got to get it on, you get it on, but you're doing it for the right reasons. I always, I always harp at the Academy that the, the thing is in police work, they say in, you write your police report, you have to justify your actions. James, you and I can justify all kinds of shit. I can walk up and sock you right in the face. It's bullshit. But then I can take three hours and I can justify why I did it. I teach them, you're, you do something because it's justified. And then you, then you document why you did it, the justification. You don't justify your actions after the fact. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And that's, I, I firmly, I can get passionate about that all day. It's, it, you do it because it's the right thing. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. A guy has a knife. He's 21 feet from me. He's holding it to his side. He doesn't want to drop it. So I just shoot him. Well, okay. I need more than that, right? And it doesn't mean that we had the old 21 rule, you know, a foot rule back in the day. But, okay, there's got to be more than just holding the knife. And I'm not bagging on that. There, are, We see so much bullshit in the media. These officers are doing stuff that's justified. But we're only seeing clips. The men and women are so brave that do law enforcement. It breaks my heart to see how they are just beat the shit. Anytime they shoot somebody, these men and women aren't going out to execute people. We don't talk about it in briefing. Let's go out and shoot somebody, whether it's race, male, female, uh, uh, a disillusioned veteran. We're not going out. I, I need to get a mark. Let's go kill somebody. We don't do that. It doesn't happen. Mistakes happen. People are afraid. Some cops do it because they might be afraid. There might be some. You see it. There was a total freakout moment. It happens. We're human. But our men and women that protect us, we need to back them. We need to support them. They're in a bad way right now. It breaks my damn heart. And, you know, but we do it because it's the right thing to do. You just don't do it because you can. I could have hit people with my baton a lot. I never hit anybody with my baton. I'd pull it out. I would, you know, didn't have to, you know. Um, I hit a guy with a flashlight. Okay. But it was like a baton. So, but when I say a baton, but I just, you do things cause it's right. You know, if, if, if I have to go hands on, I go hands on, but your most powerful tool is your, your reasoning ability through your voice and your brain. And that's what I try to teach. Now I also teach if you got to shoot somebody or you got to hit them with a, your, your nightstick, I, I just age myself a nightstick, your baton, right. Or a taser, use a taser, you do it. You do it. You don't hesitate. That's how you get hurt or killed. You can't hesitate. You have to know the law. You have to know, you know, what I can do procedurally, your policies, all that stuff. You have to know it. And then you react. And you can't be afraid to react. They're afraid to react. Because right now, somebody will show a clip. They reacted. They reacted properly. I've seen them. They're reacting properly, but they're getting slammed. They're getting crushed over it, crucified over it. It's sad. Yeah, well, I think the philosophy "walk softly but carry a big stick" is, is the perfect explanation. You know, I think whether it's police, fire, whatever it is, I mean, there's times where we have to use, you know, pseudo violence. We have a combative patient. You know, we've got to tie him down. We've got to yeah. drug him up. You know, I mean, there's there's been more than one kind of like tussle in the back of the the rescue that I've had. Um, but I think you know what's interesting is the movement. The outcry was defund the police and. Anyone in the first responder professions knows that actually what we need in general, and there are some great, great departments that are separate from this conversation, but most of us need more training, higher hiring standards, you know, so that because a lot of the mistakes we see made are from lack of training, lack of ownership, lack of fitness, you know, all these areas that contribute to, oh, my only go-to is lethal force, for example, because I'm, you know, 
deconditioned and undertrained and whatever. So, you know, the investment in the people is what we need, not taking the resources away. And the same I see at the front door in the fire service, for example. You know, it, there's places out there that set the bar super high. I talk about Anaheim all the time when I got hired. And then there's people, places that dig a hole to put the bar in. It's so damn low, like the last place I worked for. And I see the ripple effect of each. Anaheim, you had professionalism all the way through the ranks. The last place, you know, I, I hate to call people out, but it is what it is. If we had a fire, there were some people that wouldn't even put their masks on because they will freak the fuck out. And your children just died because of that. You know what I mean? So there is a ripple effect that I've seen in departments I've physically worked in, positively and negatively. And I think that's even with the the SRO position. There are departments, Roger Shai came on, he's uh, Idaho police chief, and talked about how they select theirs, this whole process, and they have to be, you know, great with the kids, but also tactically very sound and fit. And then I think what happened in this case is you also get departments where the turds get shipped over to the schools. And then we see like Parkland, for example, we won't even fucking go in the school to save the children that are being murdered. So, you know, I think the SRO position is incredible, but we also have to make sure that we're training all our officers well. And the ones we're assigning to protect our children, sure as shit better be, you know, the cream of the crop of that department. Well, you're right. The the SRO position, sometimes I joke with people, so you're retired because it's usually uh, uh, an older officer that goes there to, because they don't want to be on patrol anymore. And that's where they go. And some of them are, some of the older officers are phenomenal because they have patience. They have life skills. They have, they have kids. They may even have grandkids. They're great with kids. Some go there because they're lazy. And so, you know, and that, that's, you know, you got lazy everywhere. And so I, every time I open my mouth, I think I'm going to offend people, but I'm not talking poorly about SROs. They're awesome, but you got to pick the right folks. Right. And the, you hit the nail on the head training training is so expensive. And, you know, at my position at Lodi PD, we'd work with the budgets. And when they make cuts, they would cut from training. And training takes time. So you're going to take your officers and send them to a five-day, it might be a five, you know, whatever the hours might be, an 80-hour course. It takes five, four or five days, whatever. You lose the officer off the street. Well, you can't afford to lose the officer officer off the street because you don't have enough officers. Your budget only allows you to have a certain amount. And then it's it's X amount of dollars to send them and all these things. So they just slash and they think they can get away with little little trainings or just do a briefing training. So you hit the nail on the head. A lack of training and a lack of resources create that. If we had more officers, two two person cars everywhere, maybe you don't have to be so heavy handed because you don't get a one on one fight, right? You should have three people, you grab a hold of them, you can get them to the ground, body weight, hold them force them in, whatever, then a perfect world. We don't, you know, Lodi is a, um, we're solo, we're solo in the car, you know? So it's where you're running around on graveyard all by yourself. And you might be on your, I have to, when I talk to the, the cadets of the academy, they, they're always asking, you know, we teach them all, you know, what they need to ask for. And they're, where's my backup? Where's my backup? I'm saying, hey man, your backup doesn't beam down like Star Trek. It doesn't happen. You might be on the ground dealing with somebody or, or talking to them, confronting them, Three, four, five minutes. Time that. See how long that is. Wrestle somebody for three or four, five minutes by yourselves. So you got to be smart. I always teach you got to be smart. You don't want to go hands on. You don't want to be confrontational right up front. You don't want to do these things, even though I know maybe I'm taking you to jail. I may have to act like everything's cool and you're going to be able to leave because I'm buying time until I get my partner there. 
you know, we have to, we have to use our numbers. So maybe, you know, if we had more money, you know, instead of defunding, we increase the training a hundred percent more training, better equipment. Some agencies have crap equipment, old equipment. Um, and then, you know, more officers that maybe, again, maybe things change. I don't know. I mean, I have my own opinions on things I've seen. And again, this, this guy in Minneapolis, I refuse to say his name, but he set us back 8,000 years in race relations and everything else. All he had to do was just move. If he wasn't choking that guy, all he had to do is just move his knee a little bit. You don't have to stare at people and punk them and keep your knee where it is. Cause I'm a police officer and you can't tell me what to do. Move your knee, readjust it there. He's inciting him. And, and I know that he knew he was inciting him. We're human. We know when we're getting somebody. I know if I'm getting you angry. I know when I can pick at that scab and, and trigger you a little more and a little more. All he had to do is move his knee. All he had to do is move his knee. Provide first aid as soon as you've didn't happen, you know, and whatever, whatever happened, happened. You know, I wasn't there. I saw the video. Pisses me off. Um, but uh, maybe if they had more people or better training, I don't know. We'll never know with, with that, with that, you know, with that one. Yeah, and we had uh, Chad Lyman on the show, who's a uh, Vegas PD um, officer and high-level jiu-jitsu coach. Has a lot of law enforcement jiu-jitsu training, um, but he's also you know, an expert witness on a lot of this stuff. And and it was really, really great conversation because I mean, I'm a fireman for Christ's sake. I'm pulling up half the stuff with law enforcement just out of a you know um, a civilian's lens. You know, I, mean, I don't know anything about that other than you know what I see when I work alongside you guys. But his thing was. What no one discusses was how Minneapolis, the city of Minneapolis, handled it. They handled it the same way as anyone else would would have murdered someone like that or manslaughter. And he had the book thrown at him. So everyone's tearing up the city. And what was awful is you saw black people being executed during these riots that were supposed to be pro, you know, pro black, you know, demonstrations. For what? For this horrendous act that was actually handled appropriately when it came to the prosecution side. So, you know, that didn't get any airtime, you know, and Chad, Chad was so articulate the way he described it. But yeah, when you look at that case, everything, the you know, sentencing and everything was, was appropriate to how it should have been for that kind of action. And he and is now sitting in jail. And it doesn't make it any less tragic, but no murder is any less tragic. The only thing you can do is hopefully find justice for the family, which is what happened. And now you have the law enforcement community globally on their heels because of that one incident, you know, and, and if it had been handled differently, I think, by the media, um, you know, and suppress a lot of these freaking squeaky wheel noises, you know, I mean, bloody Al Sharpton, every time anything happens, that shit bag gets a microphone. And then now you're inciting all this and now we have a huge body count where it should have just been one. And the person responsible for that one is sitting exactly where they should be. And now we had like ex-officers that were executed and, you know, stores that were just destroyed in these communities for what? You know what I mean? So that's that's the, the insanity is, you know, some of these politicians, some of these media outlets are 100% responsible for the reaction to that rather than the actual information coming in, which is this guy fucked up and we're going to fucking hang him from the streets. Just you watch. Not physically, I mean, but you know, through the 
the uh, the legal system and have ownership of it and let that be the message. But it wasn't. It was immediately yet another wedge driven towards, I mean, between members of society. And now you have a them versus us. And then you have the defund. And then you have all the violence and death and destruction that comes from the defund. Now they're reversing and, you know, backtracking and saying, oh, that was never my idea. Well, it's too late because even more fucking people are dead because you politicize this rather than made it exactly what it was, which was the horrendous ripple effect of one department's action, or excuse me, one officer's actions, and let's reverse engineer that. Should he have been hired? Did he meet, you know, high-level criteria? And how was he trained? And how was he was he slept and rested? And, you know, what was his mental health? You know, and go to that point. But yeah, they didn't. They turned it into an absolute circus that resulted in so much death and destruction. And it was just heartbreaking to watch. Yeah, I mean, they 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 want to make it about other things than what it was. Um, you know, you saw the 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 one officer; she pulled her handgun instead of the taser. Right? That's uh, you know, that's that's a freak out moment. That's either stress, that's training, all these things. Right? I don't I don't believe she did it for reasons they're saying she or people are maybe thinking she did it. She didn't do it for that reason. But I've seen. You know, I've seen where officers have done stuff and gone to prison. There's a video from, I think it's a South Carolina or North Carolina officer that shoots the uh, the black motorist in the back that's running away. And then he goes over and puts his taser down. I show that to every class that I teach. And I'm like, this is a criminal. And I guarantee that officer probably, it wasn't his first rodeo. He was probably heavy handed to begin with. And I'll bet the other officers didn't report him. And so one of the analogies I say, and I don't know that, but I say, hey, if you guys see your fellow officers doing things that are bad, you have a duty to report these things. Now, are you a snitch, all of these things? Hey, maybe this guy was out beating people up. I don't know. But if you saw something that was so out of whack, if they would have reported it, maybe it would have stopped at him punching a guy or um, you know, pushing him down or tr- you know, treating him improperly versus maybe he's emboldened, like, hey man, I can do whatever I want. You know, I'm 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 the police, right? And I can do this stuff. And then he just lined that poor man up and just shot him in the back. And and then he goes up and lays the taser down. You know, luckily somebody was there filming that. And that guy went to jail. You know, that cop went to jail fast. You know, and so I mean it is what it is. They 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 got it right in that sense. They got it right uh, with this joker in Minneapolis again. I just I won't say his name. We don't need to That's the other thing is we we should stop you know, saying these names of these folks that do these mass shootings and things like they want to be famous. So we put their picture up. We say their names all the time. Say that that's one of the things we do it. You know, we, we try to do that. I've learned through, you know, enduring warrior operation, enduring warrior. And, and I've done ruck to remember, which was phenomenal. We say those names to keep them alive. So we say names of, of the fallen and keep them alive. That's how we do it. Don't keep these other people alive by giving them any spotlight, you know? I know we're all curious. We're morbidly curious. I am. We're always like, who did this? You know, what did they look like? What was their name? Don't say it anymore. We don't need to say his name. He's That's old news, man. We're beyond that. Let's move forward. Build good relationships. Be good at what we do and, and move forward. So, Absolutely. Well, that was a great segue because I wanted to talk about OEW. So let's do that. I know that happened before, you know, you transitioned out. The law enforcement community is so Tell me how you came across Operation Enduring Warrior and then how you ended up joining that team. So it's my wife's fault. 
she started a company called the Original Warrior Pack. Um, and her company produced gloves and uh, compression sleeves and things like that for obstacle course racing. And she and her her business partner, Tracy, they got into this and they they did their first Spartan race through our gym. They were challenged. They went and did it. And like ladies, you know, they got to have all the gear. I was giving them a bad time. You don't need gloves. You don't need these things. And so they went out and bought gardening gloves and knee pads and all that stuff. And they they work like shit. And so when they got done with their race, they were, they were thinking there should be specific items for this. So long story short, they started Warrior Pack. And in doing so, I was trying to help. I was just kind of cruising the social media, trying to find people that might want to try their stuff and interesting folks. And I just came across, and you know who he is, Lopez. I came across Jonathan Lopez. This guy, boy, I saw him and he was doing these things. Uh, and you know, for those of you who don't know who he is, he's uh He's a, a veteran. He's lost his arm, his left arm. And the man is so inspirational to me. The things, he, there's no, you can't do anything, John. Can't can't skydive. What's he doing skydiving? You can't, uh, you, you can't shoot a bow and arrow. He's shooting a bow and arrow competitively. You can't ride your motorcycle again. He was out racing in a motorcycle, all these things. So I saw him running around with a bunch of guys wearing gas masks, doing all these incredible things. And I just kind of struck up a conversation with John. And if you know him, you can... If you, st- if you talk, if you, if you reach out to him, he's going to talk and you better be ready because he's going to get you to do something foolish. And that's what he did to me. But, um, so through that, I just kind of, I met John and I saw operation enduring warrior through some of his posts. And the more I learned, they were helping wounded and disabled veterans and, and I wanted to give back. And so they were out doing a, an event out here, uh, um, in Lake Tahoe. So I knew John was coming out came out with a good friend of mine, Jeff Farmer, and they were going to do this event. And so I met him and I started talking to him and, and I didn't realize that it was just uh, veteran only at that moment, you know? So I was having lunch with them and we were chatting and I said, Hey man, how do you get into this gas mask team? You know, I wear a gas mask as a SWAT member. I wear a gas mask, you know? And he's like, you can't, Jeff Farmer looks at me. You can't, have you been in the military? And nope. He goes, sorry, can't. It's a closed club, buddy. And I'm like, what? So long story short, they knew what I did. I knew about them. I supported them. I would go out as a, we call them OCAs. Um, and the OCAs are Operation Enduring Warrior Community Ambassador, a volunteer, OCA. So I became an OCA and I would go to events and I would go out on the course with them and help them. Um, and I loved it. And my wife was an OCA. She did it. And we would go places and do all this stuff. So one day out of the blue, one of the guys called me, uh, Danny Stokes, and he says, hey, CJ, we're tired of the way cops are treated in this freaking country. Well, I'll just say it. We can say it on podcast. This fucking country, the way you guys, you guys get treated like shit. You guys are like the Vietnam vets coming home. It's bullshit. We think it's bullshit. We want to do something and we want you to help us. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And they said, let's start a nonprofit for law enforcement doing what we do. And I want to, he wanted to call it Task Force Sentinel. And so the dream started with Task Force Sentinel and I saw that starting another nonprofit was, to me, was fruitless. I convinced them to get the board, a uh, board of directors for Operation Enduring Warrior, to add us in their mission. So it's everything we do for for veterans, we we added law enforcement, and we didn't add fire anybody else at that moment because we weren't sure if it was going to work. We weren't sure if we had the funding, the the capable. We're going to have more mouths to feed. So let's start slow. And they knew I was going to retire. So they said, would you 
would you start this for us? So myself and Chris Thorpe is another law enforcement, uh, a sheriff's deputy uh, out here, surprisingly in California. He and I started Task Force Sentinel up. We called it Task Force Sentinel, but we were just Operation Enduring Warrior. So we started that up and um, it, it was to benefit our wounded uh, law enforcement members as well as our veterans. And we found two law enforcement members that uh, I had seen on social media and I've been made aware of, Stephen Reed, we call him Bones. And he was a New York City police officer, a detective. And um, uh, Peter or PJ Tanzilli, he was out of New Mexico, was shot uh, trying to arrest a carjacker. And he was forced into retirement with uh, his wound. And he, he has a lot of pain from it to this day. Uh, and so we contacted them and said, hey, would you like to be our honorees? And they said, yes. You know, we, we told them what we did. And we launched Task Force Sentinel. Our, our Task Force Sentinels, we called it back in the day, at our first event, which was the West Point Spartan out in New York. And PJ and Bones were our first honorees for the law enforcement side. And um, I had to do a lot of work, legwork. We, we got our uniforms. We have uniforms we wear. So uh, we decided what we were going to look like because our military uh, folks wear multicam with bump helmets that are coyote color, backpacks that are coyote color with our water systems in them. And we wear gas masks. And so we went with navy blue pants, you know, midnight navy blue pants and top looking more like SWAT and with the black bump helmets and the black backpacks and the black belts. And so when we're out on the course, you'll see us carrying the flag, the OEW flag. You'll see us carrying a blue line flag everywhere we go because uh, we support our men and women in law enforcement. And we'll carry that all through the, the courses. In addition to we're intermingled with our multi-cam veterans. So we're working with vets that are injured and law enforcement that are injured at the same time. We do all the same, uh, all the same services for, for the men and women in law enforcement. And we have now decided that firefighters, we love you guys, you men and women. So firefighters are also part of our mission. And we want to serve wounded, uh, disabled uh, firefighters, retired or not, come out and we'll take you out as an honoree and do cool things like skydiving. Um, we climb mountains, uh, we ruck march, we, uh, we Spartan race, obstacle course race. Public speaking is one of our big uh, gigs. We teach the men and women that have went through so much that are so inspirational to go out and tell their story. And maybe they can make a living doing that, but they, they inspire. You know, they're, they're inspirational, just moving on from what they went through. They're so inspirational to be around. And our biggest one is archery. Our newest program is archery, and that's blown up, and it's so therapeutic for our men and women. Uh, they they find working that uh, that bow and arrow, they can't concentrate on the the PTSD stress that might be going on, um, things that are they're struggling with. They've got to focus on that sight and that bow and arrow. So uh, I got in. I mean, I probably went way off course here, telling you the whole story. I pr get pretty excited about it, but we, you know, they they reached out to me long ago and they said, "Hey, man." We want you to, we're tired of the way you guys are treated. So let's make this happen. So we did. So the first time I think I was introduced to OEW, um, you know, Lopez and some of the other guys were there. And I think the first time I just ran with a different honoree, if I'm not mistaken. But the, the next one was Drew Stokes, who I think was your second law enforcement one. Have I got that right? Second group. Set. 
Yeah, second group. Yep. Yeah. So, and it, it was incredible because I I'd interviewed Drew before. So, for people listening, Drew was uh, uh, got Border Patrol. Border Patrol. Yep. So he was doing evacuations to Puerto Rico. They brought a family back. He literally went to Publix, our grocery store, to get this family some surprise supplies out of his own pocket because he was that kind of person. Comes out to the parking lot. Some little shitbag drug dealer um, decides he wants to kill a cop that day and shoots Drew multiple times. Um, and uh, he's still able to, to draw his weapon and, and you know, uh, you know, protect himself, but then he dies on their operating table. I mean, if you haven't heard that story, it's absolutely incredible. Anyway, fast forward, I think it was only a year later, Drew did the OEW Spartan race. Um, and watching him, having heard his story and watching him prior to the race and watching him at the end, and we actually sat down, Spartan gave us a little tent and we did um, an interview with Lopez, Drew, um, his wife, um, and a couple other people. It was It was amazing. Like he had this realization that yes, I had these injuries, but I'm capable of so much more than I thought. So I watched literally the metamorphosis of one police officer right before my eyes, having sat with him and hearing a story and then sitting with him again post race. So, you know, it, it's, it's amazing what you guys do. Um, I'm actually driving to, uh, I'm not driving, flying to, um, Charlotte in two days to go MC the gala to help fundraise um, because I mean the the mission is absolutely incredible the people are absolutely incredible um, and uh, I can't I literally cannot recommend an organization more especially when it comes to people in the military and in the uniform professions that have been injured to not only refine that tribe but also be challenged of what is possible post injury. Man, I'll tell you, yeah, you hit the nail on the head with that. That's one of the things that I fell in love with with our organization was getting out. And, and I was just giving credit to um, our our Warriors Voice program manager is a, is a guy named Jeremy Charlo. He was shot in the line of duty and he's retired and he's he's had his own, you know, there's always struggles after you get medically retired. I found, you know, fine with these men and women. And, and I was, you know, Jeremy downplays what he does. And I just, I had to tell him, and I, t and I tell this about all of our folks, he is inspirational to me. They are inspirational to me because Drew, Jeremy, everybody, all my friends, Norby, Jonathan, I don't feel like working out. I don't feel like doing things, but they're doing it, right? They're missing an arm, a leg, they're blind. Matthew Bradford, blind, missing two legs, working out. You know, Jeremy, Jeremy has to walk two miles to and from the gym. He works out every day. He, his focus was to become a masked athlete. He wanted to help. He wanted to give back. He was one of those guys that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if I want to be helped, but I want to help. Well, he came in as an honoree and he found that he loved what we do in our mission and he wanted to serve more. He works out. He was, he was not in the shape that he needed to be in. He dedicated himself, worked out, became a masked athlete now. And the guy has to walk to and from the gym. He could sit back and just, you know, on the couch and poo-poo himself on all this stuff. But no, he goes out and does it. All these men and women can do that. The inspiration, it, it's just, it's, it's like catching lightning in a, in, a, in a bottle, man, when I get around them. PJ was, for me, was, was your Drew Stokes moment. So I ran next to PJ the entire race at West Point. I was assigned to be PJ with, with PJ. And PJ would go by an obstacle and say, I can't do this. 
my, it just, I, he has drop foot. He has all these issues that he's dealing with. And he's like, I can't, I can't do it. I'm like, okay, you don't have to do it. We're just there to have, we're there to socialize and you do what you want to do, but we're here to help you get through it. And his wife went with us and his wife would go do it. And it was like maybe a crawl. And then he'd go, fuck. And he'd turn around and he would do the crawl. And then we'd go, ah, oh, I can't do that. And then his wife would go do it. Fuck. And he would go do it. At the end of the day, he did every obstacle. And when we came across the finish line and we jumped that fire with him, luckily I'm in a gas mask and it smoked out. He and his wife, they hugged. And the crying that was going on, the pride and the crying, and I'm sure that's what got you. I was bawling in my mask to see PJ find that he could do that. And PJ's come to California and run another one. And I, I just, once you have that moment, James, you're reeled into to giving back. Well, and that's with any nonprofit, if you believe in it, right? But I was reeled in. I remember I went to Lake Tahoe. I told you they came out and did something Lake Tahoe. And I was only, I always say only, I, was, I wasn't allowed to be a, a, a masked athlete. I couldn't be a masked athlete because I was not in the military. And I was helping Norby Lara, Norby and Earl Granville. And these are some of the cast of characters that I, I was just so fortunate to meet and their inspirations to me. So I was helping them and Norby climbed up on my back. Norby's a missing his right arm. A, um, a rocket propelled grenade went through his right arm, took it at the shoulder and Norby's badass. And so Norby's climbing over a wall and he just needs to step on somebody. Well, he stepped on my shoulder and I was so eager to help. And then his boot ripped down my right ear and about tore my ear off my head. And he climbed over. And, and I was helping, you know, Earl was put, trusted me and he put his hand when Earl Granville put his hand on my shoulder, just meeting me. And we're going up and down these mountains and he's an above the knee amputee. I don't know anything about that at that time, but his knee doesn't articulate. Right. So going downhill, his knee gets, you know, he can't release, he's not stable. So he holds your shoulder. I was so proud that he would trust me to hold my shoulder. and. Norby would trust me to step on me. And then they're talking with me, right? Sharing their story. So I call my wife after I'm done. She goes, how was it? It was hell. It was hell. We were out there all day. We did, we did the ultra beast. And it was just silly for us to do that. We were out there for 12 hours. And, she, and I was worn out. She goes, how was it? It was awesome. First thing I said, it was Norby stepped on me and about tore my ear off, you know, but he trusted to step on me. And that's, that's why I like SWAT, the team, the camaraderie, the trust, the brotherhood. So I got something out of it, you know, and they allowed me into their inner circle. And, and from there, I wanted to give more and more. And so they've sucked me into, you know, now I'm the vice president of operations. So now all the events we're doing, I'm trying to, you know, keep my finger on that and manage the, the, the budgets. And it, it's, it, we're, we're very busy. So I, I'm giving back more and more and more. And I've had some great experiences. I got to swim with whale sharks, James. I got to go with nine other veterans and we took them to Atlanta. They have a program there and they offered it to our group. And we swam in the Atlanta aquarium with whale sharks. And because I was there, they allowed me to go with them. I get to do so much cool shit with cool people. Or as, as Lopez said, hood rat things with hood rat, hood rat buddies, hood rat, <laughs> hood rats. But, um, you know, they, he suckered me into walking, rucking 60 miles in two days. And, you know, he's got that accent to his. And he's like, you need to do this. You need to do this. It's life changing. We're going to ruck to remember. 
and it's over Memorial Day weekend. You need to do it. And I said, John, I was a police officer. I don't go anywhere I can't drive. If it's in the middle of a park, I drive my patrol car in the middle of the park and then I get out, you know? And I was joking. I've never rucked. I didn't even know what rucking was. I don't camp. So he cons me into doing this thing. And I trained my ass off. And we walked 25 miles the first day with our everything we you know have to carry. And then we bed down for four hours. And that was a nightmare. I can't camp. I couldn't sleep. It was hell. I, I actually contemplated leaving in an Uber, finding a hotel for the three hours and coming back and then breaking my stuff down like I was there and just say, I just came back from the restroom in the firehouse because <laughs> it was that awful for me. But I did 60 miles. And, and he, I, my joke with John is I thought he said 16 because of his accent. I didn't sign up for 60. I think he said 16 miles, you know. But they've got me, he got me to jump out of a plane. I'm scared to death of heights. He got me to parachute. So this organization has inspired me and made me grow and do things I would never do. And I get to see it's doing doing that for people that don't think they can do it again. And here I am able-bodied, right? I got folks missing legs and arms and can't see. And they're doing stuff that, you know, that they never thought they'd do again. So I love our organization. I love what we do. I love our people. Um, so it, it's fun and I get to do cool shit, James. I get the cool the, swim with a whale shark. When am I ever going to do that? So, you know, cool shit with cool people. Beautiful. Well, the organization obviously had an incredible leader in, uh, Eric Schmitz and, uh, you know, I had Troy on the show. He talked about this too, Troy Warshaw. I've had so many people. I mean, we had, uh, you know, Caleb Brewer, Earl Granville, um, and then obviously PJ and Drew. So, you know, honorees and, and members of the membership itself you know the the um the hierarchy so talk to me about that i mean eric was a you know an incredible figure and someone who you assume is you know invincible you know in that kind of role so what you know what was that kind of experience for like you being where you were in the organization oh man that was that was so so hard I met Eric on that uh, that Lake Tahoe deal I did, and I was I was just beaming about. Eric was out doing this ultra beast in a kilt, and I was like, "Who is this dude?" You know, and he's got this a five eleven um, camouflage kilt on, and I'm chatting. Well, I don't know who he is. He's unassuming. He doesn't tell me he's the president of OEW. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't tell me what a badass he is on any of these physical challenges. I've heard, I've since learned all these things about Eric. He always wore a hat that had a smiley face on it. It's a rule number four with a smiley face. And I just remember all those things about Eric, but I met him and he was so unassuming, so humble, uh, quiet. You know, he's just behind the scenes. Let everybody do a thing, you know, do the OEW stuff. He didn't step forward. I'm, you know, I'm OEW president. Never. I got to work extensively with him because starting starting the law enforcement side, I worked with him. He got the board of directors. He got the approval. He and I set up what uniforms we were going to wear. So I got to meet this man. And um, I was fortunate enough, the year before he passed, we did police week as a group. Um, we, took, uh, we took and took to the streets, Washington, D.C., in our gas masks, uh, and we did five mile loops. We did a mile for every officer de- who died in the light of duty. And it took us three and a half days of nonstop walking and, uh, down the mall. We did it around the mall in DC and we did it in shifts. And so one night I, I had a two hour shift with Eric 
and we were walking just the two of us alone and we were talking and I learned, I, I didn't, I learned so much about Eric, who the man was, you know, he grew up in Oregon and, you know, went to, to Oregon state and all these things about Eric Schmitz. And um, we revered Eric, you know, and, and actually kind of feared him because we'd get on these team meetings and, and get, get to arguing about stuff and he would shut us down, man. It was boom, gavel come down and he made a ruling and off we went. Right. And if you got him to smile or laugh, that was big. Um, it got him to act goofy because he didn't act goofy. That was big. He was a command sergeant major. And I didn't, I didn't know what the hell that was. Well, now that I know what that is, I know why he acted that way. You know, he was so stoic. Um, everybody revered Eric. So, I mean, that's a little bit about Eric, but when, when I found out, I was blown away that Eric had died. And then I was blown away that he'd taken his life. And I have never, James, I've never, I've, that was 30 years in law enforcement, seeing all that my, that I've seen, it shook me to my core. I was very emotional naturally, but it shook me to my core that I knew somebody that did that and I didn't see it coming. And I felt like I didn't help him. And then after he's gone, much like with the 16-year-old kid, in my see, my experience, it gets even deeper uh, with a 16-year-old kid and all that experience and the medium and all this stuff. And then Eric passing and taking his own life. I'd never known somebody personally that's done that. And I missed those clues. So after the fact, I'm examining my time with Eric. And I, uh, you know, one time he really let loose because we were alone. It was him and I and two other folks. And he let loose and he drank. You drank and drank and drank and had a good time. And I'd never seen him like that. But that was shortly before, a couple months before. I didn't realize that. I knew he was going through, you know, he had, he was being separated from the military. I thought it was a good thing. I didn't realize that was a bad thing for a military member. They still want to work. They don't want to retire, but they hit that plateau. And the way the military works are explaining to me, he was basically being forced to retire. I thought, you know, law enforcement, we're high-fiving out the door, man. We're, we made it. Hey, you deserve it. I'm telling that to him. And then they're pulling me aside. Hey, man, that's, you know, that's not the way it happens with us a lot of times. And he doesn't want to leave. So, so there's things that are, you know, they're going on. And I, I missed all those things, James. And I felt like I failed them. And I learned from Eric. He taught me a lesson that we are checking on folks. You know, at my position at the police department, I was checking down on the folks, right? You're checking down. We weren't checking up. We weren't, I wasn't checking on my police chief. You know, I wasn't checking on my president at OEW. I was the VP of operations and he's above me. He's checking on me, but I wasn't checking on him. We weren't checking on Eric because Eric is, he's that piece of granite. He's good, man. Eric is worried about us. He's good. And that was a huge wake up call for our organization and for all of his really close friends. And for all of us, we were shook to the core that we missed that with Eric. Um, and we deal with folks, our honorees, we deal with folks and they will tell you, our honorees will come out and tell stories about how they tried to commit suicide and failed, how they were thinking of doing, they, they're open about it, right? So I'm in and amongst these folks. I see them when they struggle. They'll call me when they're struggling. I have several that would just, we talk every day, they're calling me. Um, and so I miss that with Eric and it shook me to the core, man. And 
you know, Candor was his call sign. When you're a masked athlete, we don't go by names. We go by call sign. He was Candor, you know. So, you know, Candor is a special, has a more of a special meaning to me. Um, but now I know I got to check up. You know, I check up. I never thought about that before. I would have never. He's our, our granite. You don't have to check on him. And granite can be broken. And it it was hard. And, the, and then the other analogy, and again, you know, I love to give the man a hard time. You know, Lopez, I give him a hard time. But he used an analogy that just resonates with me. He said, you know, no more. We got to stop. And it's such a great analogy if you're thinking about it. When we, when we know somebody's struggling, I tell you, James, you're telling me you're struggling. I'm here for you. Just call me. When you struggle, you get in your dark, dark times, you just call me. And I'm always there for you but I'm not calling you, see? And so the analogy was perfect. He said, he's talking, you know, offline, John's talking to me and he's saying, hey, somebody, that's like saying, if you're drowning, swim to me and I'll pull you up on the dock. No, we got to jump in the water and swim to them. And that really, I had, that, there was two points of clarification for me through Eric's death. He's checking up and all this stuff we say, hey man, I got you. I'm your brother, I'm your bro. You call me. I'm there for you. No, that's not the way it works. It was a wake-up call. We need to be checking in. And that's changed me. I've called a couple people. It's uncomfortable. I, uh, One of our guys, I called him. And I said, hey, you know, I heard, I heard you slurring. You know, we were on a call. You were slurring. And, and you know, and, and you're, you told you were making, you were saying that so-and-so was gone. And they were gone for a long time. And I'm like, are you okay? Is, is that really true? And and then it was true, but I, I've learned that I've got to call people and just and ex- put my head in the chopping block if I make a mistake or embarrass myself, but not be afraid to do that, to say, are you okay? I'm concerned. Are you okay? And it's hard to do because you don't want people to think that, you you know, people, you know some, you're afraid to do it because you think, oh, you're thinking poorly of me. No, I care, man. And I want to make sure that I'm there to help you. Yeah, no, I... <sighs> Firstly, the, the, the kind of perspective of, of thinking up, I think is any organization that has rank structure, you know, we're, we're discouraged to go upstream. You know what I mean? You think, you know, organizationally, you know, it's kind of, you know, freelancing or insubordination, you know, so, but when you think about it as a human being, the transition out is something I talk about a lot on here, you know, and, and so obviously retirement, unless you've got other tribes to go into, can be very, very taxing for people. I think in police and fire, you know, like you said, some people are counting down, but there's also an element where a lot of us identify as a firefighter, a cop. And if that's all you have is an avatar of yourself now, that can be a huge struggle. Injury, like PJ and, and Drew and some of these other guys, another component, you were doing what you loved and then one day you're not anymore. It's taken from you. But I think a less um, acknowledged element is promotion. And I think that, you know, say you were a firefighter and you were in a crew and you would jam up like my, my Anaheim lads and now you make battalion chief. Now you sit in an office pushing papers and doing staffing, you know, and, and you're not with that that tight-knit group anymore, you know, or you're in admin or, you know, training or whatever it is. You may not have that same camaraderie they were used to. So, you know, and then as we said, I'm sure if you know if we look back in Eric's earlier life, there are probably some things that contributed before he ever put a uniform on as well. But we're not going to know any of this stuff unless we talk to him. And it's it's interesting what you said because 
I do that all the time. Sometimes I just get weird feelings. And we're kind of going back to the medium thing again. Sometimes I'm just, like today, I just reached out to a friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine that I know has been struggling with alcoholism on and off for a long, long time. And, you know, there's elements of abuse in, in his kind of younger years. And he's still to this day not able to to get hold of it. But I just felt this urge today to reach out to him and, and you know, check on him again. And it's, you know, it's an ongoing thing with him. It's not like, yeah, I'm great now. Thanks. You know, no, it's, it's, it's one day he's good. The next day he's not. But I agree with you completely. We as people need to be able to ask for help. And that's one part of the solution. The other part is that we have to create an environment that makes them want to ask for help. And I think part of that environment is us making it normal to check in on each other. You're right. Yeah, that that's, that's the thing. If it's just out of the blue, it's, it's un- un- uncomfortable, but if we're constantly talking or asking and how you doing, whether it's by text or calling it, and we all find that, um, your tribe, you find that, that person you click with, uh, my example for OEW is again, never been in the military, but I met, uh, one of our honorees, Josh Rainey, Josh was in the army and Josh was, you know, he had some heavy things happen in the army and you know, uh, one of them, he was blown up. His truck was blown up. And, you know, there's a lot of trauma there where he had to go help those that, that had died. He was you know, doing his doing his army duty there and being a tough guy doing that. But Josh came to us uh, when we did the Baton Death March. And so I was out doing the Baton Death March. And Josh and his wife, they didn't say two words to anybody. And I remember seeing him. All I can tell you about Josh was he had a beard uh, and he was wearing a red shirt. And I didn't really know who Josh was. And then I got a chance to meet him at another uh, another event, and we clicked. And for Josh and I, Josh calls me a lot, and we do a lot of that talking and checking on each other. And it's just like we've kind of found each other, right? And so three, four times a week, we're talking on the phone. And to watch him come out of his shell, he would not leave his home because he nobody could relate to him. Nobody could trust him. You know, he didn't feel like he could trust people, all these things. And then Operation Enduring Warrior comes along and he feels us out with his first event. And now he's all in. And now he's he's making up events. He's ruck marching for fallen officers. He's doing these challenges. He's showing up and speaking. He wouldn't speak before. and But he's my guy that I kind of learned that I check on Josh, right? And Josh checks on me. Um, but going back to the retirement, I had that. Uh, I was excited to leave when we do that. I used to tell myself, I'm not going to be that jerk as I retire and say, three more months, two more months, and egg everybody on. And I was that jerk. Because you do. You get excited, right? Well, the week before I was going to retire, I had a nightmare. I'm very social. As you can tell, I don't talk much. <laughs> and uh, I, had a, I had a nightmare, and it disturbed me really bad. The nightmare was, and you, and you hit it on the head as you become a battalion chief or you know you lose your tribe. My nightmare was I retired. And then, so I was, uh, I, I dropped that, the ceremony, the retirement ceremony. The ne- next morning I woke up and I had nobody. I was in the house alone with nobody. My wife works, my kids are at school and I had nobody to talk to. I had no friends. I was alone and it really disturbed me. And it made me question whether or not I should retire because I had nobody and my identity Lodi police. I, I know I met so many people in the city that's taken from me, but thank goodness for me, OEW came along just prior to my retirement. And I started working on 
with Chris to, to bring on Task Force Sentinel. And then I started doing events and I started meeting Josh and everybody else. I had that tribe. I had those people I could call. So I don't, I don't often spend a lot of time with my my former mates at the police department, as you, as you call them, making funny. You're my mates at the police department. My new tribe is I'm constantly calling Troy. It's funny. He says, I need my CJ time. Why aren't you calling me? And Josh Rainey, I'm calling Josh Lopez all the time. And Lopez is usually unloading things on me to, he's got new adventures for me to try to strike up and do. And, and luckily I had that, right? And so maybe Eric didn't have, I mean, he had OEW, but maybe he was having that alone dream, right? I don't know. Um, but I do know, and I heard one, I think it was one of your podcasts that as, as I listened to your stuff, one of your speakers was talking about being alone and, and the fear of the retirement. And what am I going to do? And the other thing I do is I hoard jobs. I've got more jobs now than I've ever had in my life. I am so busy. I, I have numerous part-time jobs. And I'm that guy that somebody says, hey, um, I'm looking for somebody you want to do it. Yes. I don't even know what it is. My wife says, how are you going to do that? I said, I don't know. Why did you do it? Well, what if I lose a job? I, I need a job, but you're retired. But I, I can't sit at home. So I've got like five part-time jobs that I'm trying to manage because I'm afraid of being alone. And now I'm at the senior center driving them crazy talking to them. The the seniors are telling me to get the hell out of there. You know, I'm I'm sitting and talking to them. But I just like being social and I like to have a job and I like to help. And so maybe that's the case too. But that's what OEW does. We become that tribe for them, you know, and we get them off the couch. Uh, the other thing we help is the spouse. I can't imagine being the spouse of somebody going through that. How incredibly hard is it on the family, right? So the spouses that we have of our members help the spouses of our new members. And I always call it, they walk the walk. They've already walked the path. They know the route on that path. You just jumped on at the beginning. They could come down and guide you along that path. And so one of our members, one of my favorite stories, James, about our organization was James Nance. You need to interview James Nance. He's a Stockton police officer. I call him Jamie, James Nance. He is bigger than life, this man, uh, bear of a man. He was a motorcycle officer. We knew each other for years. I was a motorcycle sergeant. I got to do everything, man. I had a great career. So I met Jamie long ago. We knew each other. But one day, Jamie was patrolling on his motorcycle in, in the city of Stockton, and he's hit. He's broadsided by uh, a vehicle as he's turning. And He's paralyzed now from the waist down. And I, I was, when I found out about it, I was talking to my buddies and I said, Jamie doesn't know it yet, but he's going to be our first wheelchair honoree for the law enforcement side in, in, in Operation Enduring Warriors history. He doesn't know it yet. And Jamie and I were not on the level. We were calling all the time, but I'd already started that whole thing, man. I'm going to start leaving some kibble and I'm going to reel him in. I'm going to grab him by the collar and we're going to go do great things. And so I put the word out through somebody. I said, you tell him about that I'm looking for him and tell him about our organization. And so he tells about it that he's getting this right where he's at rehab. He's getting it. And he starts, we start chatting. And before long, he's about a year into his new journey on his path. And I said, hey, let's do the Pat Tillman run. He goes, what's that? You know, and I said, it's 4.2 miles in Arizona. We'll fly there. And he goes, wow, I just learned how you wheelchair and use a plane. I just came through that training with my wife, Catherine, and I said, okay, let's do it. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to give in. I'm going to enroll. I'm going to become an Operation Enduring Warrior honoree, and we'll do it. And I got to go on his first trip 
flying and we did the Pat Tillman run, but we selected another honoree, Tyler Wilson. He was in the army. He was shot. And three times he was shot over there and he's paralyzed. He and his wife, Crystal. Crystal was his caretaker. She knows everything there is to know about dealing with people who are paralyzed. That's where she met her husband. She treats him, man. She would chew our butts out if we weren't taking care of Tyler. Got to watch his skin. Got to watch his legs. Got to watch his temperature. She was awesome. And we finally earned her trust through events. She was. She would be all over us. We'd be out there, our group. She would tell us. She'd be watching us like hawks. And where we knew we were successful was when she left us alone with Tyler. And so I said, hey, let's get, get them together. And sh- they agreed to come. Jamie came with Catherine. And what I hoped was at some point, I would see those two families talking. And Tyler and Crystal teaching Catherine and James their path. And we did the race together. And they talked. And I'm, you know, hey, they're going to be best friends because they're in wheelchairs. You know, that's my, you know, they're going to be best buddies, these two, right? At the end of the night, we were at a, we were at a get together. And I look over. And sure as shit, they're over there talking and they're doing their stuff. And I don't know what they talked about, but in my head, I was hoping that they, that's what was going on. They were leading each other down the path. But Jamie and I have been out. I've flown on a plane with them to San Antonio for a Black Rifle Archery event. Jamie's our archery program manager now. He's calling me every day mad at me because I lured him in and told him, it's easy, buddy. There's not much work. He just chewed my ass this morning. He goes, that's bullshit, man. I got so much work. I got to drop off another another volunteer thing I'm doing because I love this so much, but I don't have time. I said, well, you know, I tricked you, Jamie, but um, he was our first wheelchair guy, but that's one of the ones that really means a lot to me that he, again, they trusted me. That's huge to me if somebody trusts me, right? And I don't want to blow that trust. So to get him to come and do that and now watch him do it, we took him to New York that year too, and we did the Tunnel to Tower. Jamie did the Tunnel to Tower, and we had such a blast. We got to go to a really nice restaurant. We did the Tunnel of Tower. We went all over, and he was zipping around on his wheelchair, and his wife said, look at him go now in his wheelchair. And now Jamie's like, hey, uh, are we going to do Tunnel to Tower this year? I want to do that one again, you know? And it's just, it's a blast to, to see, you know, how, how things happen, you know? And I just, I'm along for the ride, you know? But for me, I, I just wanted to share that story. Is one of my, one of my, he didn't know it. He didn't know it, but I wasn't giving up and he was going to do it. And, and he's doing it now and he's killing it. He's such a good archer too, to watch him shoot the bow. And if you get around him, James, you come out here and you meet Jamie. He's like, hey, James, do you shoot bow and arrow? No, let's go out in the garage. You're going to do it now. He thinks everybody's got to shoot a bow and arrow, right? So it's, it's a lot of fun. So he really believes in our program and what we do. Beautiful. Well, for people listening then, where can they find more about OAW online? Online at Enduring Warrior. It's not Operation Online. It's EnduringWarrior.org. Or we can go to, uh, we have a, a YouTube site. We have, uh, you know, the Instagram. We have Facebook. And that's all Operation Enduring Warrior. So if you search Operation Enduring Warrior. Uh, if you go to YouTube, there's a really good uh, video. Uh, it's like a four-minute video. It tells a lot about us and our honor reason what we do. So if you go to YouTube and go to Operation Enduring Warrior, you'll find that one. And another one that sends chills, uh, it mistakenly was titled OEW Archery. If you go to OEW Archery, if you type that in the search bar for uh, in the YouTube, it'll pop up and you'll see it's the archery video. And it's basically the hell and the stress that police and fire go through. Now it's hard to go back to normal. So chaotic shooting scenes, chaotic radio calls, and then the silence and peace of 
of our men and women out there shooting their 3D targets and uh, and uh, what that program does. It's like two two minutes long, but that's how you find out a little bit more about Operation Enduring Warrior. And I would encourage anybody that that might listen if you're new, you know, if you're new to what if you just popped on and you've never heard of us before, check us out. We're always looking for more volunteers. The OCAs. You can volunteer and give as much time or as little time as you want. I mean, you can sign up and never do anything, or you can sign up and and become the president of the damn organization after a couple of years. Also, we're looking for more honorees. We need people, if you're listening, and you know somebody who's struggling with PTSD or you know injuries or alcoholism, and we don't we're not clinicians, so we're not we don't put people in programs. We aren't gonna send them to to a psychologist. We don't do that. We do things through physical activity, physical fitness, physical wellness, and socializing and fellowship. That is huge. So that's where we come in and we do stuff. And and so I had one gentleman say, I don't want to do a Spartan. I did all this high speed stuff in the army. I never want to do that again. I said, that's the, that is our excuse to get together. You don't have to run the Spartan, but say, I'll do a Spartan. Call me and say, I'll do a Spartan. Okay. And we'll walk the Spartan and you can avoid everything. But that whole weekend is about being together, having meals. If you drink, drink. If you don't drink, you don't drink. And we just have fellowship for a weekend. And somebody cares about you. Somebody listens to you. Somebody can relate to you. You can relate to them. You can trust them. And that's all it is. And let that grow. And you might be my buddy, Josh Rainey. Like I said, he's not a cop. I was never in the Army. We're, we're two little besties now. Uh, that may occur, you know, that, that may blossom. You just never know who you're going to find that you really, tr- you know, you just, I, I, I trust this person, you know, so come out and play with us. Beautiful. And then if people want to connect with you personally, what's the best place to find on with you online? Well, here's my telephone. No, <laughs> um, you know, online, I kind of, James, I kind of dropped off the old Facebook, Instagram thing. I still spy it. But if you reach out to Operation Enduring Warrior, um, I still have a Facebook account. So if you look up Chris Jacobson and I have an Instagram, if you DM me, I'll look at it. I just really, it was, it gets turned so ugly. All that turned so ugly. It just used to make me so upset. So I do, I do look at it, uh, but I'll see if there's DMs, I'll check them. But, um, you know, my business card, I guess it's, I, you know, my business card is what it is for OEW. So my business card is my phone number. Um, and my email, my email is C, my first initial for Chris, C.Jacobson, J-A-C-O-B-S-O-N at EnduringWarrior.org. So you can email me and I'm not afraid. I mean, if you want to call me, you can call me, you know, uh, it's 209. It's probably the stupidest thing I've ever done, but it's on my damn business card, you know, uh, and I give it out to every, you know, foolish person at a Spartan race. Please don't be a jerk. But you know, two zero nine three two nine eight eight zero six. If you're, if you need, if you're interested, you can you know text me or call me. I'll, I'll be happy to help you get into the programs. You know, um, we do vet people. You know, we do. There's a there's some vetting that goes along, but we're here to help. But again, we're not. We don't fund. You know, like alcohol or drug programs, or you know, we don't. We don't. We're not. That's not our mission. Our mission is to get you physical again, get you off the couch, and. Hey, if you're in a wheelchair, we'll, we, we, you can do it. A Spartan race is done in a wheelchair. James Nance did the Sacramento Spartan in a wheelchair. We have specialized wheelchairs. 
and he did what he could. If we had to lift him or carry him, he trusted us to do so. We helped him. Tyler Wilson does it from a wheelchair. Tyler did the uh, tactical games, the uh, shooting games, uh, the rifle and handgun games that's physical. He's done that. So you you guys can go out and do that. So And we're here to help you do it. We'll facilitate that. We'll make your dreams come true. You want to get muddy, dirty, get tired, shoot a gun, whatever, get thrown out of a plane? We'll make your dreams come true. Well, Chris, I just want to say thank you. I mean, we've been all over the place from, you know, mental health to mediums and everything in between, but it's been an incredible conversation. As I've said before, you know, you brought some amazing people, some other guests in here. I mean, I got to talk to a lot of the OEW um, honorees and, and uh, you know, members um, on this podcast as well, but this has been a long time coming. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and telling your story today. And thank you, James, for having me. And again, I'm a nobody, man. I, I did 30 years. Uh, I made it out with, I just feel like a nobody and very vanilla is the way I feel. And I do what I do because I love it. So I don't feel like I'm somebody worthy of being interviewed. And, um, you know, if somebody enjoyed it, fine. If not, turn it off right away. You know, I, I heard somebody say, my job is to talk and your job is to listen. Tell me when you're done. <laughs> I laughed so hard when I heard that, but, um, you know, I'd love it. You know, like I said, you know, Jamie Nance and, and, uh, Norby Laura take that Nor Norby is, is, a he's one of my heroes from OEW Norby Laura. Uh, I, I'm going to get you into, uh, uh, contact with both those guys and they're, they're inspirational to me, but, and I'll feed you more as I get them because these people are inspirational. I find them inspirational. So. I love doing it. Thank you for what you do. And thanks for having me on. Thanks for promoting our organization.